0: Welcome to Dragon Talk.
1: Yeah. How's it going? I'm Greg I am- Tito. I'm Shelly Mazinobel. That was a fan. That was a fan that said I love Greg Tito. You Cito.
0: keep doing that. I don't think... Because <laughs> people know that no, you insist in one of your voice. I
1: actually tried to... That was a different voice.
0: <laughs> it was a little Go back different. and listen to previous yeah, Dragon right. Talks. We'll listen to the tape. Uh, <laughs> I am actually Greg Tito.
1: I'm Shelly Mazzanoble.
0: And we are talking to you here on this official... Dungeons & Dragons podcast. That's, That's what right. Dragon Talk's all about. Yep. We have an amazing guest uh, on the interview section for this podcast episode. Daniel Kwan from so many different organizations. Know, Asians Represent, uh, as well as... Uh, level Up
1: Gaming. Level
0: Up Gaming, and uh, archaeologist extraordinaire. Yeah. Like... Oh, it's super cool dude. What a wonderful conversation. Uh, yeah. Talking all about uh, how he's inspired to create... Uh, TRPG content for uh, Asians and using Asian culture, uh, yep. different cultures within Learned Asia and what that's all about, the different classes that he's designing for that, and then as well as all of his work with Level Up and and uh, bringing Dungeons & Dragons to people on the autism spectrum uh, and letting them practice in a safe space. I don't know. Yep. It just was a really, really great interview. It really was. I'm excited. He
1: is a, a wealth of talent.
0: You should uh, stick around for that. Then, of course, we have our uh, uh, segment coming in after that, but...
1: Before we get to all that, let's talk about Extra Life. Okay. right? Let's
0: do this. What's going on with you for Extra Life? For Extra Life.
1: So um, I'll be playing in an Extra Life game here in uh, a couple weeks, in a week or so.
0: It's soon, like November 9th?
1: I think it's next week, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We will be playing a little snippet of Dungeons & Dragons versus Rick and Marty. Sweet. Maybe don't let the kids watch that
0: one. Yeah, one's even though it's for the kids, it's not for it's the kids.
1: F- for the kids, but it's not for them. <laughs> huh. Do it's, You understand the difference. It's
0: a nuanced thing. Yes, I get it.
1: Um, but I mean, obviously, we'll we'll stay somewhat on yeah. the rails if we can, as you should. Um, ben Petrosor is going to be DMing that. Sweet, he is a very funny DM.
0: You have been a big fan of Ben Petrosor's Mastering and yes. just normal personality he, for years. I know
1: I have been a, a big supporter of Ben. Yeah. I really like
0: him. He's a funny, funny dude.
1: And he watches The Bachelor.
0: So you have that going for you.
1: We like to recap The Bachelor. Sometimes I think we should have a podcast doing that. You should. Because there's only like 497,000.
0: And you should not we talk to me about there. it anymore. I would appreciate that.
1: No, I think I'm still going to talk to you about it. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> I almost got off scot-free. It's really fun to talk to you about it.
0: <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> your judgment is fun for everyone. I love it. It's fun. Um, but Extra Life is super awesome. I love all the stuff that you're doing. Um, and you. I have got a page up right now where you can be a guest on Dragon Talk if you donate. Uh, I'll donate. And, and make it happen. We'll, we'll interview you. Interview me. All right. We'll doppelgang you and then we'll... <laughs> <laughs> an
1: interview by me, yeah. Of me? Could we like have...
0: That. Maybe Bart can pretend to be you and then we'll interview them. I feel them.
1: like... No, I... I will be me and Bart can do the interview and then he'll be like, I never knew any of this about you. This is so weird. (laughs) We don't talk at all.
0: (laughs) Except on Dragon Talk. And from
1: now on, I'm going to be like, if you want to talk to me, you need to get a microphone and some headphones and interview me. That's the only way we
0: can converse (laughs) as spouses. (laughs) <laughs> well, and anyway, you can donate for the kids. Uh, that's what Extra Life is all about. It contributes yes. to the Children's Miracle Network of hospitals uh, all over the country, all over the world. Yeah. Um, but a lot of our proceeds go to the Seattle Children's Hospital. I, my, Child has been there.
1: My child's been there.
0: It is a super fun, interesting place. There's going to be some Dungeons & Dragons streamed games from From, that location, from the Seattle Children's Hospital, with kids, with patients. Uh, So that's really exciting. How awesome is that going to be? Bart has been knocking that out of the park. Uh, I'm very excited to see that happen. Um, And there's all types of fundraisers going on at uh, Gamehole Con in Wisconsin uh, this weekend. When you listen to this, it'll be the past weekend, but uh, also at Luca Comics and Games in Italy. Uh, all type of, uh, of, you know, fundraisers and contributors to what's going on there will be going back to Extra Life, which we're really excited about. Amazing. Amazing.
1: I uh, love it. Uh,
0: I think we're getting the Dung Sweepers back together, too, for oh. another game that will support Extra Life. Really? Yeah. Uh, it's not this next week. It's the following week, because uh, I have a wedding to go to next weekend, but... Uh, Why
1: are the, so many weddings? I know, right? You are gone almost every weekend for a wedding.
0: Three weddings. I had to go fly back to the East Coast for this year. This alone. is
1: another one on the East Coast.
0: Yeah, yeah. This one's in Cape Cod. I know, right? I've been in back to New York twice. This is one's in, in Cape Cod. So at least we're well, going to beautiful fun, places. Yeah. But um, you know, you were just in New York. Actually, how was how was New York? It was
1: so good. I ate a lot of bagels because that's my favorite food, and I really love New York bagels. And I ate one. I just devoured it. I shoved it right in. And then I got up and I went back to the counter and I'm like, can I have another one of those? <laughs> and she was like, oh my God, really? And I'm like, lady, yeah, do not judge. Keep it coming. Toast the bagels. Let's get them rolling.
0: You were like at a bar. You're like, all right, taking a shot. And then you're like, keep it coming. Keep, keep it relieve the bottle of bagels. I did. I
1: just like put, leave a, the bottle. put a 50 on the, the <laughs> counter and like, just keep coming. <laughs>
0: Uh, but you were there for playing some Dungeons and Dragons versus Rick and Morty tabletop role playing yeah. game adventure, yeah,
1: yeah, and it was amazing. Was it? Um, just listening to people play that game is hysterical. Like, like, people are like, "I can't laugh anymore. My face hurts because it's just yeah funny."
0: Are, are you selling some kind of therapy or or so, like <sighs> facial massages, massages that you can get, you know, yeah. to prepare yourself for the hilarity?
1: Yes, yeah, that's why I think that you'll enjoy our extra life game. I hope because it's just. I mean, D&D is generally entertaining to watch. But this is just so wild. Right. And it's off the wall. You don't have to know anything about Rick and Morty. You're still going to have a really fun D&D adventure.
0: Right. And you don't necessarily need to know anything about D&D either. It's not necessarily a know. starter set, right? Uh, which we've said, but it is a, a great way for... Bringing in fans of the show into tabletop role playing, and vice versa, people who are fans yes. of D and D into what the the world building behind yeah. Rick and Morty.
1: I actually was talking to some people at the New York event, and they said, "You know what? I Think I'm going to use this to get my friends to play D and D. Nice, because it's so it's like a little bit more mainstream. Like he's like if you have friends that maybe have a, a barrier to playing D and D, that's like, well, I don't like fantasy or." Mm-hmm. It's too high fantasy. Like if they have like some impression about like, oh, I don't want to be an elf or whatever. This is like, this is easy. It's, it's, it's Rick and Morty. You know, you can jump in that way. And it's just, it feels, it felt more um, attainable. Yeah. And there's also because some of the, like Rick is kind of rewriting a lot of the rules that you, there's not really an emphasis. You, you actually like, you, even if you know D&D rules, well, now you got to learn Rick's way. Because so, it's a little bit different. And
0: it's it's interesting, fun, weirdo it stuff. It is.
1: And like some of the stuff he comes up with, it's like it's actually not bad. <laughs> it's actually kind of decent advice.
0: Well, you know, what's cool about that is that it wasn't uh it wasn't actually Rick who came up with that. It was Kate Welch. And Jim Zub. And Jim Zub, but yep. mostly Kate Welch who designed the, 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 the Dungeon Master she, stuff.
1: Um Well yeah. Jim Zub came up with like Rick's annotations to the rule book. Okay. Um Kate and Adam. Lee and Ari Levitch all worked, uh, and Ryan Hartman also from um, Penny Arcade. Oh, sweet. So they all um, worked very hard on building this adventure, which is like, it's, it breaks all of the rules that you think you know about D&D. They just kind of took this opportunity to say, like, what, are, what would people typically do through a dungeon crawl? Let's do the opposite Let's of that. Let's do it. Let's do it. I love it. You will love it.
0: All right, well, I'm going to jump in as soon as I... Uh, when are we going to get a copy in the office?
1: I might have one under
0: my desk. All right, I'm going to open it up on d News next week.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah,
0: yeah okay. we'll show people the components. That'll be fun. Um, so that is coming out November 19th. Yes, um, along with... Eberron rising from the last war... Big day. It's a big red letter day in Dungeons and Dragons history. <laughs> Celebrating, well, Eberron is just amazing. We've talked about it a lot, uh, but it is, you know, kind of a new, it's a huge book, 256 pages. It's got uh, a mini adventure in there. It's got all of settings uh, that you could possibly have an entire class. The first time we we're introducing in a class since the Player's Handbook came out in 2014 for, uh, for fifth edition, Whoa. The Artificer. Um, there's race, uh, you know, multiple different races that you can play. Four completely new ones, and then twelve, uh, no, um, yeah, I think twelve uh, additional ones that are like dragon marked house races of of uh, yeah. versions of folks in there. Um, maps of uh, lightning trains, of uh, elemental galleons wealth of information about the last war and what is happening in uh, Eberron and it's fascinating. And every time I talk to Adam Lee or Chris Perkins about uh, some of the content that's within that book, I get more and more excited. Awesome. Um, Eberron was not a setting that I jumped into uh, when it was first introduced in 3rd edition or even during 4th edition so it was been, my
1: first setting I ever played
0: in that's amazing yeah. that's really cool and it is for a lot of people um, but for, I, I, never, I never did I never jumped into it and so this has been a wonderful introduction for uh, getting excited about this different different themes that yeah. you can explore uh, with, with this book so I hope more people find it pick it up on November 19th that along with the Rick and Morty book together I hope they set a Rick and Morty adventure take, within these
1: characters and shove them in I around. know right
0: let's mash it all <laughs> up I want to see it happen uh, so that's exciting. Um, Tyranny of Dragons is out in stores right now. It is yes. a uh, combination of two volumes, Horde of the Dragon Queen and Rise of Tiamat, yep. that were released five years ago in 2014 with the release of 5th edition that adventure has been fine-tuned a little bit. Uh, some of the encounters uh, are smoothed over to allow for dungeon masters to have a, a easier time with first level characters. We learned a bit in we tuning just a little bit. I don't you want know? to oversell it. There's just you know, it's a little bit of fine-tuning. Didn't um, need much. The, some appendices, some some table of contents uh, uh, edits to make it more clearer. And then my favorite part about that, there's like 30 pages of concept I art love that
1: too.
0: on the back, beautifully, not just. Beautiful concept art, but graphically designed con- concept art because uh, I believe it was Emmy uh, or it might have been Trish knocked that section out of the park. It yeah. looks beautiful, it looks fresh, it looks like it just is having these these dragons and other characters come to life uh, in a way, and you saw how how the thought process was of putting them uh, you know in fifth edition.
1: But now I kind of want that for all of our products. I know. I feel like I'm a little spoiled now.
0: I know. Well, maybe we'll we'll start releasing some of that cuz I it, depending on how the feedback goes, I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah.
1: All right, so let us know. Let all us right. know if you like it as well.
0: Um speaking of feedback, there is a survey now that you can take.
1: Survey says,
0: <laughs> show me pudding. <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 uh, have you seen that meme uh, it, it was going around a few months ago but it was uh, the new host of Family Feud uh, and it was oh, I, I'll, it's a difficult to explain but essentially it's, it's a D&D type thing where they no. the Yeah, it's like trying to say like what you know, you wanted to get into the shop and the first spell you're gonna cast is fireball, is what the wizard says. And she's like, You've done all these things, you've saved creatures, you know, you've 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 uh, saved the world from damnation from an evil lord, you know, you're you're a uh, proponent of this good God and you wanna fireball this <laughs> thing, and then he's like, All right, what does the survey say? And then it's fireball is the number, number one, one answer. Number one answer. And he's like Ugh. Uh, I don't
1: understand anymore.
0: Um, so that's kind of what the survey's like. <laughs> yeah. Answer all of the questions. It's, it's long. It'll take you about 20 minutes. Uh, it's on the D&D website or linked from Open
1: ended questions our social or multiple, media. Choice
0: multiple choice questions? Multiple uh, choice questions, although there are some, some write ins there okay. that you can do. But it is uh, uh, a wonderful value to us to be able to get that type of thought from the uh, yes. community um we have a tradition i think with fifth edition starting with the D next playtest, of just incorporating player feedback as much as we can not just in the uh the books that we put out but also how we present the community and how we you know can think about development of things going forward in the future so it's really valuable to us um and uh we'd love for you to let your voice be heard so make it happen do it do it on the survey yep uh, Dragon Plus has a new issue that's yeah, out. Yeah,
1: cool cover. Issue bargain.
0: 28 is out. Uh, I can't believe there are 28 issues of 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 Dragon Plus. It is chock full of preview stuff about Eberron as well as Rick and Morty. Yes, lots. Lots.
1: A good article in there.
0: Um, free maps, free uh, RPG content that you can use in your game. Uh, Matt Chapman, the editor-in-chief there, has been uh, really you know, running the gamut from all these good. amazing things. I know. Uh, so download that onto your iOS device or Android device, or you can check it out on dragonmag.com. It comes out every two months, and it's, like I said, full of stuff for you. So, d d fans, read it. read it. Read it. Read it.
1: And get the app on your phone. Just do it. you always have up-to-date everything. All right? Yes.
0: I know. Um, speaking of up-to-date everything, yeah. news happening here in... The video game world.
1: Oh, yeah. Wizards of
0: the Coast bought a video game development oh, studio yeah. in Montreal. They're named Took Games. Do you know what a Took is?
1: A Tookus. <laughs> <laughs> That's a
0: butt. But a Took is, it's spelled T U Q U E. They're from Montreal, so right. it's very French. Uh, but I believe it's uh, like a beanie cap, like oh. a, 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 knit, oh. a knit cap is a, is a Took. Um, and so, yeah, that's what they're named. And they, After a beanie. They made uh, a awesome game called Live Lock, and they're making a Under the Dragons game. Oh, yeah. so wasn't that exciting. Check it out. Uh, all of the folks are talking about it, and uh, hopefully you are too. I wonder what they're making.
1: Welcome to the family.
0: Welcome to the family, Tookers. Tookers. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what they're called? <laughs> they are now. <laughs> I know. I feel bad. Uh, but, you know, I, everybody's going to be wearing hats.
1: I'm, I support that.
0: All right. Um, what, you know, it was just Halloween, uh, around these parts, so a lot of people were talking about, uh, Betrayal at House on the Hill.
1: Yes, if they would, were. Yeah. Spooky game nights.
0: Do you, do you see a bump in, in sales every October?
1: I mean, I, I see a definite bump in, like, people talking about it on social media, because yeah. everybody's like, hey, it's Halloween, spooky, we're having spooky-themed game night. Sweet. So you go right to the house on the hill,
0: and you get some widows' walk too, just to Add spice it, in it up. There,
1: and if you're like, oh, I really feel like I want to play D D, but also betrayal, how about betrayal at Balder's Gate?
0: You get all the lore about what's happening in Baldur's Gate from that game. You guys, that
1: is such a good game. It
0: is a good game. Yeah.
1: Let's. Let's get that in your hands, people. Let's pour Let's one pour
0: one out for, for, for Baldur's Gate descent into Avernus. Wait now. Oh wait! Uh, betrayal at Baldur's Gate Why descent into Avernus. When
1: you pour one out, it usually it's because like <laughs> it's because of respect, right? Okay.
0: Oh yeah. That, I fun. will say,
1: raise one up. Raise then. one up.
0: Cheers,
1: betrayal S- at Baldur's scroll.
0: Gate. Ah. Um, that is, I think everything I want to talk about right now. You want to you want to get moving on to yes segment, segment number two. Yes. All right. Let's, I'm not sure what it's going to be, but let's give a little listen and see if you can guess from the theme song what's going to happen. Okay. Welcome to another segment of Sage Advice. I am Greg Tito, and I'm joined by Jeremy Crawford. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Very excited to have you back on this segment, where we jump into uh, you know, topic of the D&D mechanics and rules, of which you are the lead developer, uh, and uh, you know, suss out what you uh, want to bring to the table from people that ask you questions, but just more about the philosophy behind it. And today's subject is Spell Components. The V-S-M-R-T-S... No, wait. <laughs> v- just the first three. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, vocal, somatic, and material components in 5th edition. That is exactly right.
2: And we've talked before about different aspects of spellcasting on this show, on Dragon Plus, uh, but it, I thought it would be fun to talk about just those three letters that, yeah. that, that, that uh, sort of unobtrusively hang out at the top of of our spells, you know. sometimes just one of them, sometimes all three, maybe two of them, and really not only talk about the rules of them, but talk about the narrative customizability that they offer to every spellcaster in the game, whether that spellcaster is played by one of the players or is played by the dungeon master. Oh,
0: yeah, good point. And, and these type of components have a storied history throughout... Uh, each edition of the
2: game indeed they they've been with us since first edition they they vanished for fourth edition and then <laughs> came back in fifth and one of the reasons why we brought them back is precisely because they are such a rich way of understanding what's going on in the world of D d visually when someone casts a spell mm. uh And also D&D spellcasting, going way back again to its beginnings in the 1970s, has always been kind of wonderfully funky and weird with, you know, you're saying arcane words or twiddling your fingers or doing some other gesture or, or hurling out bat guano or whatever whatever the particular material component is. Or,
0: or they were not doing any of those things. Like right. It was just like, hey, I cast, you know, sleep. No one ever thought about it, you it, know? And, and the flavor of that was, was missed unless you had a player or a DM
2: that, you know, concentrated on these components. Exactly. And in the old days... You would even have uh, – I remember this back when I was playing first and second edition. You would have some groups that were sticklers about you can only cast the spell. If you have on your character sheet enough of this particular material component, right. then you'd have other groups which, who would ignore all of it. I was glad that we brought it back uh, for the current edition precisely because of the descriptive potential – that rests within them yeah. uh, so that, you know, magic isn't just, uh, you know, appropriately enough, magically happening <laughs> with no connection to the spellcaster. This really shows you are working to make this happen. Something is happening in the world to unlock these amazing magical effects. And you need to go through this process – no matter what type of spellcaster you are, because that's the other thing, it's one of the universals of D&D magic is whether you're a cleric, a druid, a wizard, sorcerer, warlock, an eldritch knight, an arcane trickster, etc., 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 you have to engage with these, these gestures, these words, these components. That's like the bedrock of like almost the science of magic in the D&D multiverse, that magic is unlocked through these activities. Now, I should pause and talk real quick about a few terms. Okay. When we say spell components in the rules, sometimes that will get misread as meaning simply material components. And it's really important for people to remember, if we just say spell components or simply or like a spells components, any any kind of uh, construction like that in the text, we mean components of any kind, whether they're V, verbal, S, somatic, or M, material. We're only specifically talking about material components if that word material appears there. I bring this up because there are some cases where we allow some creatures to essentially uh, have a shortcut in how they manifest their magic, particularly some of the creatures in the game who have psionic innate spellcasting we will tell you in their innate spellcasting that because they're manifesting their magic psionically, one of the signs of their psionic power is they do not require components at all. You don't use VS or M. Yes, that, that means you don't see anything happening, which kind of makes it eerie, like just suddenly something happened. Where did it come from?
0: Yeah, and it should feel completely different than the wizard in your party who you know, must study those components and have a pouch that pulls out and all that type of stuff. It should feel weird. Exactly.
2: Uh, And then we have yet other creatures uh, where we get more specific and we say, well, they they can innately cast these spells and they can do so without material components, but they still need the verbal and the somatic. So we do all sorts of uh, subtle tweaks like that, not for any kind of game balance reasons. It's purely about the narrative in the world, how we want – the manifestation of magic to look and feel different depending on who's doing it. Uh, Except again for uh, standard player characters and most of them, they've got to do it using uh, these tools. Now when it comes to those tools, I think groups often don't realize how much customizability there is there for their spellcasters. We'll start with verbal since it's the first of the the VSM. You could, if you're playing a spellcaster, decide what those words are that you're saying. Now, it can be magic (laughs) mumbo-jumbo, but I have played uh, with people and my husband actually is one of those people that especially when he plays a wizard, one of the things he does as a part of his character creation is he comes up with what the magic word is that his wizard says for any spell he knows that has a verbal component. Oh, wow.
0: He does. He, it's one word, so it's not like a, a
2: it, string of words? It's usually one word, sometimes a phrase. I certainly don't expect all D&D players to do it, but I, as his DM, love it when he does it, partly because I've had the, the joy of getting to see him play multiple spellcasters, and they each have different words they say. And so the words that he often picks uh, are meant to have a feel that's appropriate to the character. Uh, Here's a great example of it. Uh, He, uh, last year, I think, uh, when we were at D&D in a castle, played this wizard who was this uh, scholar, And so he wanted all of his spellcasting to sound very scholarly. Mm. And because of that, all the magic words that he said was, had a kind of very Latin, uh, you know, sort of medieval Latin kind of style. Uh, whereas other times, he's come up with magic words that might have a vague kind of Gaelic sound if he's going for more, you know, wants it to sound more uh, like something from the British Isles. Are they
0: nonsense words or are they...
2: Usually. he? You know, he takes inspiration from often real world languages simply so that there's some recognizability in terms of like what it kind of sounds like. Um, Now, of course, there's always when you do that, the chance that you might accidentally be saying something in another language.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And in Gaelic, you know, you're all of a sudden you're insulting their, you know,
2: aunt. Right, right. Yeah. Um, So verbal components. I a great chance uh, for people to do customization. Sometimes uh, I have my NPC spellcasters uh, actually verbalize their verbal components. Sometimes I do nonsense words, uh, but it's usually, uh, well, when I do nonsense words, because they're nonsense, it's never about what those words mean. It's a chance for me to have the character's voice give off a feeling uh, because even like a dm you can strike fear into people if they simply hear that npc spellcaster casting something mm-hmm. and if they sound menacing as they utter those nonsense words that can make that can actually make a pretty regular spell seem way scarier than it actually than is. it actually is yeah. because if if the spellcaster is you know in in menacing tones you know Uttering these magic words, people are like, Oh my god, you know, he's gonna summon devils or something, and it might, you know, it might just be a regular a fireball. Right, here's a bunny, <laughs> or yeah, here's a bunny, <laughs> but oh my gosh, that bunny, yeah. And that's it's really
0: interesting because I play with a uh, a, a, a player who played a lot in the 80s when he was a kid, and uh, in his group back then, they had a string of words that they all used as a group for arcane magic and a string of words that they all used for divine magic. Wonderful. Yeah, and so each time they cast a divine so, so I started, as I'm playing with him now, I was like, hey, so what, is it, what does it sound like? What does it feel like? And he was like, Dominus Optoglottimus. <laughs> I was like, what? He's like, yeah, that was, and that was just what we always said when it was a, 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 a cleric spell. It was Dominus Optoglottimus, and so the others at the table have kind of like adapted that to being like, oh, that's, that's what they say.
2: Fascinating. I
0: know. And
2: an- another option is to have the spellcaster... Say recognizable words. Uh, Sometimes I will have a spellcaster in a very sort of Doctor Strange fashion. And here I'm not talking about the Doctor Strange of the films, I'm talking about the Doctor Strange of the comic books, whose spellcasting is usually accompanied by little bits of verse in English you know, you know, where he's, you know, summing up like the you know, the crimson bands or one of his other many spells, he usually has, you know, the sort of funky thing he says uh that then triggers the magic. So people could also consider that. I that's mean, super fun. You could have actual intelligible phrases that your spellcaster utters when they when they are required to have a verbal component.
0: And that's I like I'm playing as a bard right now uh who uh you know dissonant whispers and and vicious uh, vicious mockery are some of you know the favorite spells um, you know it's hard pressed to come up with something that you're going to insult you know who you're fighting against but I'll try to do it as menacing as I can for vicious mockery and and get that psychic damage so it can be you know customized for the moment as well
2: Absolutely and I I as, vicious mockery is actually a spell where I often, even if a player at my table doesn't normally come up with a vocalization for their spell casting, when people cast vicious mockery, I always ask if they don't supply it. I ask, "Well, how are you insulting them?" Yeah, like, yeah part, I, partly because it's just so fun. Like, yeah. what what trash talk are you going to marshal <laughs> <laughs> to you know to deal psychic damage to this
0: person? I know exactly, and it, it, it's hit or miss. Sometimes there's ones that are like ooh, but most of the time it's a, it's a flop, and I'm like, I don't know, and not, they're not all great, but it still works.
2: Good thing the magic is backing it up. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly right. I I got a one. I guess that's why. (laughs) For damage. Yeah.
2: Uh. So, so next up, of course, is the S, somatic, uh, which is really just a fancy way of saying you do something with your body to cast the spell. The rules say if a spell has an S component, you need to have at least one hand free to do it because it's assumed in the game that it's a gesture. But, Again, the game doesn't specify what that gesture is. Here is another place where players and DMs can come up with things uh, that help communicate something about the spellcasters. I, as a DM, actually love to use somatic components and the way I describe them to differentiate different villain groups and Mm -hmm. also different, uh, even, um, allies. That, like, whenever... Whenever uh, there's this necromancer group in my uh, home game, uh, and actually our campaign just wrapped up this past Saturday. Oh, cool. Uh, These necromancers, the priests of Osibus, they do certain things when they cast spells. And I do that partly to signal to the players, here's who you're up against. uh, And it's another way to actually strike fear into people. But also, if there are certain uh, gestures that the player character's allies are known to use, it's also a very efficient way for the DM to communicate to the players, this person you just met who's casting a spell, you don't have to worry about it because they just made the sign of the three great gods of light, you can chill. Uh, yeah, it's like,
0: almost like a, um, a, a smaller version of Thieves' Cantor or something like that where you can, you can recognize things if they're you know smart to, to be able to pick up on it. Um, but, I imagine your players are you know if you if you do the same gestures over and over again, they can start to especially over the you know a long campaign
2: and and then that becomes a a great shorthand for the dm and also in longer campaigns it 's often fun having stuff like that because. Players love feeling like they're in the know, yeah. and they see that thing, and without the DM having to, you know, back up the exposition dump truck, uh, the, mm-hmm. the the players are able just to observe. Oh, uh I, I think I know what this spellcaster is all about. Yeah, they're a
0: Harper, or you know, right. they're They're from the, uh, the Emerald Circle. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Um, and you mentioned that it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, hand or arm gestures. Um, I. I've always loved the idea of a. Uh, yeah, I like bard characters, but like you know, using dance or mm, or, mm-hmm. or, or, or some type of you know, if you're in, uh, playing an asimar or something like that, of some kind of flutter with the wings that would that would bring apart you know uh, a magic spell.
2: Yeah, and and even though the rule does say you need to have a f- hand free if a spell does have the S component, I love it when people actually incorporate some other type of movement into the spell casting. And I encourage DMs that if uh, players are especially creative in their descriptions to maybe be a little generous about whether that hand is free or not Mm. Uh, because groups will often get hung up on, "Uh, you know, I had my shield there, but I need to put it away so I can do my somatic component. That – if that is a group's bliss – Mm-hmm. Awesome, because some people love that moment by moment tactical decision making down to what is currently in my hands, and I have to say for myself I have often myself loved that style of play, especially if i 'm in a kind of a, a, an adventure or a or a campaign that 's kind of a classic delve into a dungeon and you know it 's all about survival and like do we have enough rations to make it, and you know are we going to are we gonna, you know, make it out of, you know, this cave without, you know, dehydrating? Or, uh, you know, do I have enough arrows? That can be fun. It's almost a kind of survival horror. Yeah. Uh, and in so in those games both as a player and as a DM, I actually really enjoy, like, the specificity of, like, this is such a life-or-death situation. What is in my hands moment by moment actually becomes exciting because if unless we figure out how to swap out fast enough, someone might die. Uh, <laughs>
0: uh, it adds a lot of gravitas to the it, smallest decisions of, like, should I drop the shield or not?
2: Yeah, exactly. Whereas other campaigns that are not as zeroed in on those tactical moments I think DMs should feel comfortable to relax this rule about what's in your hand or not again especially if the player is super creative about the physicality of their spell casting Uh, and also again if it's a looser game you're not going to unbalance the game if you know oh my goodness you allowed them to cast an S spell with something in their hand yeah Uh, it because this is not this is not here for primarily balance reasons. It's here for descriptive reasons. And so, if they're describing the thing well, showing how their body is a part of the spell casting, they're achieving what the S is there to achieve. Uh, this is the kind of thing. If if we had had more room in the player's handbook. You know, it's sort of like if I could travel back in time, I would (laughs) have. That's right. (laughs) Um, I would. I would love to have little commentary next to some of these rules. You know, say, "Hey, this is here. Here's why." But again, of course, that's why we do podcast. I was just going to say that's what we're doing right now, Jeremy. This is perfect. Uh, Yeah, Yeah. That, that often, you know, something might seem like, "Oh my god, this is super duper important," and it might be depending upon what your your group's bliss is but it is not often important for the reasons people think.
0: Well, I like what you said that it's it's it, the the whole reason it was removed in 4th and is now back in 5th is not because there needed to be some balance between you know this first level spell versus this first level spell. Like no, it's there specifically for what you loved about it, which was these expressive moments and and ways to to put, add customization to your character. So as long as that is being followed, you're following, you know, your, your own bliss and, and adding it back
2: in. It, absolutely. And, and I, I was largely the person driving, We wanted, let's bring back VSM. Yeah. Precisely because of how often I've seen it inspire players. Uh, it, it always bums me out if a group ever sees it as a constraint in the sense of cl- uh, tamping down fun Instead, to me, I, I love it when people view it as a creative constraint. Like it's a, it's a little playground in which you get to make things up. Yeah. Uh, and plus it is such a distinctive part of D&D spellcasting versus the spellcasting you might see in other fantasy worlds uh, that, you know, you go all the way back. And again, it's about the specific mix. You know, there are other properties. You know, I mentioned Dr. Strange that he, you know, says magic words and even has gestures but almost never relies on material components. And then you, know, you might have other stories where there's a material component but, and maybe magic words, but no gestures. d d is special in how it has you know, fairly consistently married all of these elements, uh, you know, the word, the body, and then something often from the material world that helps. You know, It's almost like igniting uh, the magic, uh, helping it come to life.
0: Yeah, so we we did uh, uh, vocal and somatic, and so material does that ever fall into this balance uh, type mode? Especially for, I mean, I am thinking of you know true resurrections or things like that, where you, like you needed to have x amount of uh, GP item to 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 make it happen.
2: Yes, so material is different from the other two in that it is for some spells used as a way to limit how often that spell is going to be cast. And even there, though, it is rarely a limit for game balance reasons. We are often imposing a limit for world-building reasons. For example, uh, raise dead, true resurrection. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a perfect example of what I'm about to say. Most of the bring people back from the dead spells have a costly material component. And anyone who's read the, the rule on material components in the player's handbook knows that if a spell has a material component with a gold piece value assigned to it, you must have that component to cast that spell. It's not optional. That's there, though, not because, oh my god, the game system would fall apart if you were raising people from the dead all the time, just using your spell slots and not these costly material components. No, that's there because our narrative sense of the D&D multiverse would be undone if everyone could easily and cheaply come back from the dead. Yeah. So really that is an example of sometimes, and material components are one of the main places where we do this, we essentially do narrative balancing uh, and, and not so much. It, it's not like we're balancing the math through this. Uh, we are making it so that the world and the stories that we traditionally tell in the D and d multiverse that, they, that it holds together, uh, that it still feels like the d and d multiverse that people are used to.
0: Yeah, so the the idea being that if you went into a dungeon and you know every, everybody in your party got killed, there needed to be some real consequence to that. You know you couldn't just oh, if one person walked out and dragged all the bodies and then all of a sudden they uh, cast true resurrection next time they took a you know long rest. It wouldn't feel as, as impactful as if, oh, I need to save up for, you know, I need to go on a quest to earn the money in order to pay for this type of thing. You're right. It is almost like a narrative balancing act.
2: A- absolutely. And, and also if you then expand from the adventure experience to what's going on in the village down the lane or what's happening in Waterdeep, if death could be undone at virtually no cost – the very meaning of death would change in D&D worlds. Yeah. And so for us to maintain the, the gravity of death, we needed some limiter. Uh, we have some in terms of like not everyone you know even ha- knows this spell, um, but even if you do – there's the limitation of the spell slots, but we felt even that's not enough limiting it. So then also we went with the tr- what's been traditional for D&D, that there is also a, mat- a, a high material cost. Now, for adventurers, once they get high enough level, that material cost can actually become pretty trivial. But then we're also telling the narrative we want to tell, and that is that high-level D&D adventurers are not like regular people.
0: Yeah. The, almost godlike in, it, the, in their ways to deal with death in the afterlife.
2: Exactly. Uh, so even there, this is serving the narrative purpose that we want it to serve.
0: And it's another way of like showing progression that you okay, you're not you're not just you know beating on rats in a tavern cellar anymore. <laughs> you know, you're you're <laughs> elevated to this next strata and dealing with more cosmic uh, things, not unlike Doctor
2: Strange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, now, people who have come uh, to the game from the early days of D and D are used to when they see a material component in a spell's description to thinking that means the spell consumes the component. One of the changes that we made in 5th edition is that a spell only consumes its component if the spell's description tells you it does. So otherwise, you just need to have the component. It's almost like the magic is flowing through it, but it isn't consuming it. But then some of our spells do specify that the thing is destroyed in the process. We also have given you some customization flexibility when it comes to material components by having the notion of spellcasting focuses. This is really riffing on the uh, implements that we had in 4th edition D&D where a lot of spellcasting was channeled through different physical objects called implements – and so we carried that notion forward and we let you know in the player's handbook that if you cast a spell that has a material component, but that material component is not consumed by the spell and the material component has no gold piece value assigned to it. A great example of this would be the bat guano in Fireball mm. or the sand and rose petals in the sleep spell. Uh, you can replace that material component with a spellcasting focus or you can have a component pouch which is just assumed to have inside it all the all the you know sort of trivial components you might want what this means is you really get to decide what your spellcaster looks like casting spells. Because if you want to be the traditional D&D wizard who pulls out the bat poop to cast fireball, you can do it. But if instead you want to shoot fireball out of an arcane focus, whether it's a wand or an orb or a staff or something else, you could also do that. So you have a lot of ability to make your character look and behave uh, the way you want. Uh, And I love it too. Then, if a person decides they want to use a spellcasting focus instead of the traditional material components, when people get really creative about what their character's spellcasting focus looks like, yeah. Uh, because even though we give you some examples in the player's handbook, a wand, uh, staff, and whatnot, that is there's still a huge playground in terms of like, well, what is it? What does that wand look like? And really, what is a wand? I mean, really, it's just a it's a kind of short stick. Uh, And so you decide. How how ornate is it? How, you know, is it simple? What material is it made out of? Are there carvings on it? Are there words on it? If there are words, what did those words say? What does all of this say about your spellcaster? Where your spellcaster learned their magic? Uh, Who their masters in magic might have been? So many neat story bits can be expressed just in something as simple as the implement your spellcaster holds, right. uh, versus uh, you're also telling a story about your character if you're walking around with this pouch filled with sand and rose petals and bat poop and all this other stuff that you are tossing out or pinching or holding on to as you cast your spell. Because with this gem that you might need, yes, to, yeah, all yeah those things, yeah. When you, yeah, you pull out the gem uh, that you uh, that you cast identify with, and even there. Uh, For everyone listening who's playing a spellcaster, whether, again, DM or player, consider what is your spellcaster doing with the material component? I also think it's fantastic when people get creative about that. Like, Mm. uh, you know, uh, the identify spell requires this gem. Well, ask yourself, what is your spellcaster doing with that gem when they cast the spell?
0: Clearly putting it up to their eye like a monocle and examining what the the thing is doing for for an hour. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) peer
2: peer through it. there there are so many or you could imagine maybe even uh like maybe you hold your hand over the thing you think you know that is magical and you're identifying it and maybe the gem hovers over it you know while uh, while you're casting the spell, and maybe you get an audible report, uh, you know, like <laughs> Hello, from sir. yeah, like from Siri, from, yeah. but from the gem that describes to you the magical properties uh, of the thing, you or just it cast, moves identify. in a
0: specific pattern, and and your your uh, arcane knowledge is able to decipher what that pattern is to, to you know tell you what the the item does.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I know
0: that's lots of interesting stuff. And then you, uh, before we move on, uh, the you know you mentioned the bat guano and and uh, uh, all those things. Now, are those if they're not being consumed in a specific way, are those customizable <laughs> as well? I mean, it doesn't. Can you use different things than bat guano in a fireball?
2: You can definitely customize those things uh, like bat guano and sand rose petals uh, that don't have a gold piece value assigned to them or that are not uh, consumed. And one of the ways that we signal to you that almost like they're a variable in the spell description and you decide the value of the variable, we signify that to you by letting you replace it with a spellcasting focus. So really – Again, if I were to put commentary in here, I would yeah. say, well, not only can you replace it with a spellcasting focus, you could replace it with something else entirely.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, what, what if you're in a culture that doesn't have bat guano? Like, right. you would want to do something completely different, and then if, you know that was uh, a nice way to signal to the hey, the wizards who have bat guano here, and oh, you're using something different, and I love that kind of you know, uh, wizard uh, collegial moment of like, oh, you use that? that does that work? Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. And all that kind of stuff. Uh, all right, so uh, we're kind of winding down here, but I did want to make sure we encompass this. Um, you know, we're talking a lot about arcane spellcasting. How does this relate to divine spellcasting?
2: All the exact same rules apply. Really? Yeah, so that, that that goes back to what I was saying earlier. One of the neat things about the, the VSM approach is it applies to all uh, spellcasting across the board. So no matter what kind of spellcaster you are, if in your spell description you see that V, that S, or that M, that applies to you. Now what is special about uh, clerics and paladins in particular, because they can use holy symbols as their spellcasting focus is holy symbols are a bit more flexible in how we describe them than some of the other uh, spellcasting focuses. In that, you can uh, emblazon your holy symbol on your shield. You can wear it as a necklace. So it's not necessarily something in hand, whereas the spellcasting focuses that we describe for wizards and druids, for example, are almost always something you would hold in your hand. The main reason for that distinction uh, is aesthetic, actually. Uh, it's, again, not a game-balance game, game balance reason uh, because typically uh, in stories, and especially D&D stories, wizards and druids are shown with things in their hands, usually right. staffs, sometimes wands, orbs, that kind of thing.
0: And paladins and clerics typically have shields and, and that type of martial attitude, so why not allow them to use that?
2: Exactly. And often... Uh, holy symbols of of if they're not on a on a cleric or paladin shield, they're often a necklace they're wearing, uh, you know, or just a you know a little symbol they pull out for a moment and then put away. Uh, so they have that that extra little bit of flexibility. But other than that, they function exactly the same way as arcane spellcasters. The other little wrinkle I wanted to touch on real quick because it's a place where the S and the M intersect uh, and that is we have this rule that if a spell has both a somatic component and a material component remember we told you you need a free hand to do the somatic component yeah well we also tell you if a spell has a material component you need a free hand to manipulate that component so then that introduces the problem well wait if i do if i my,
0: need two hands do or, i need two or hands can I use the same
2: hand so we specify that if a spell has both the hand you need free to do for the somatic component can be the same hand you use to manipulate the uh, material component, which is also a way of us inviting you to decide what are you doing what what does it look like as you gesture and manipulate. Whatever special object it is that you're using uh, for a particular spell,
0: right? And you can imagine a way to to connect that so that you know whatever you're doing with the the component is the gesture that you're using, and for the somatic thing, and you know throwing the bat guano and having that be your gesture sounds sounds pretty good for a fireball.
2: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, I love all this customization. It's something that I, as a dungeon master, like to instill in my players. So it's not just I cast the spell, it, which feels kind of gamey and and not as fun and I I, I always try to encourage this type of flavor so I'm hoping that this this Age of Ice segment does that for fans all over the world likewise Uh, Jeremy, how can people get in touch with you to ask you questions about uh, what bat guano smells like?
2: (laughs) So if you want to know about what bat guano smells like, you can reach me at (laughs) Greg Tito (laughs) on Twitter. (laughs) But if you want to ask me about just D&D stuff in general, I'm at Jeremy E. Crawford.
0: Excellent. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I always love talking to you, and uh, we'll be back with uh, some more fun stuff next week. I look forward to it. Thanks. Bye-bye. That is a wonderful segment. I hope we're inspired to create fun things based on everything we learned. I love it. Do you want to be inspired to create your own segments? Yes. Yes. Let's yes. do it.
1: Okay. Oh, yes. I have a great start. I'm going to pick that up again now that my travel is over.
0: Sweet. Now that your world tour. I need a
1: name for my segment.
0: It shall be Shelly's Corner.
1: Shelly's moozings.
0: Moosings. That's
1: so bad.
0: Oh, m- wow. I I Let's get a survey. Dungeon
1: Mooster. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 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 survey says
0: <laughs> no. Did not pass uh, playtesting. Yeah, focus groups say no on that one. Focus, focus, <laughs>
1: ficus. Ficus love ficus groups. Love it though.
0: What's a ficus group? <laughs>
1: play a group of pl- ficus plants. <laughs> <laughs> they
0: very slowly they put like one thumb up. They're like.
1: Yay. Dungeon mystery. It
0: took me a week to get that, <laughs> that, that leaf up. It totally took, worth it. You. Yeah, right. It's a real slow The survey. results come in slowly, but, <laughs> but they're worth it. But we move on them.
1: Move, move. on them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, all right, let, it, let us call up uh, our guest today, Daniel Kwan. There's so much I want to ask him about uh, uh, what he's doing because yep. it seems like he's got his finger in all Lots types of, of creative books that are turning pages. Right. I know, right? Yes. So let's do it. Let's call him up. Okay. We are here today with Daniel Kwan from Asians Represent as well as so many other amazing uh, Dungeons & Dragons type things. Hello, Daniel. Hey, how are you guys?
1: We're great. How are you? Again, I let's just fantastic. keep saying it.
0: You uh, you're coming in from sunny Canada, is that right? S- S- Sun uh, Canada. Rainy Toronto. Oh. Rainy Toronto. I love that city and I've Why never been. I do.
1: It's actually it's Seattle-ish. There's a it's lot Seattle-ish of It's Seattle-ish right now. I feel like well, not just the rain, but like I feel like the aesthetics of it. It, it. I was there once and it reminded me very much of Seattle. Yeah, I can see that. CN Tower. The Oh,
0: yeah, right. They are
1: similar. Oh, that's similar.
0: true.
3: That's
1: You're true. Right. Water.
0: There's water there.
1: Yes. Rain. Rain. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's a lot of cities,
3: <laughs> but...
1: <laughs> There's something about it.
3: It is pretty cool. Large needle-like structures. Right?
0: Startups. Rain. Yeah. How you long know. have you been there? All my life. Wow, really? Yeah, all you my life. You are a Toronton... T- T- Torontonian. Torontonian.
3: Torontonian. I say it Toronto. No T. Just the, the oh, first T. Toronto.
1: Toronto.
0: Toronto. All
3: right. Is that yeah. how...
1: Like,
0: That's how a local says it,
3: apparently. Gonna
1: say, so <laughs> we're going to sound Canadian.
0: Uh, so you've been playing Dungeons & Dragons for how long? What was, the, what was your, your, your start of playing D&D? 20 years ago. Wow.
3: 20 years ago. I've been playing D&D for 20 years. I started playing third edition D&D, kind of went back to AD&D, and then went all the way forward.
1: Yeah. What made you go back?
3: Just curiosity. Curiosity. Mostly yeah. I, I wanted to play the old adventures. I wanted to try, to, try something different. I, I, liked the, I actually really loved the art of the older D&D
0: editions. Mm. And then I kind of just moved up from there. What, uh, what drew you to the game at first? Like, What was your first experience? Oh was it God. a friend? Was it a colleague? What was it? It was a museum, actually. Really? Um, oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, so
3: there's a museum in Toronto called the Royal Ontario Museum. Uh-huh. It's the biggest cultural and natural history museum in Canada.
0: And that's wait, it's, it's, Is camp. that in Dino Dan? Uh, really? Dino Dan was there. They did a recording. Yes, I've museum. seen that episode yeah. and I've seen that museum. I've been like, this is such a cool-looking museum.
3: Yeah, so they they have a like a, a program there for students that you could actually go and play D&D oh, over wow. the summer. And like you learn how to shoot bows, you hold swords, wear armor, and play D&D and learn all about history. Wait,
1: 20 years ago?
3: Yeah, they've been actually doing That's it so there cool. since like the, the early 90s, I think. That's so cool. And Very progressive. so I went there as a kid, and then love fell in love with D &D, and then what happened was i ended up teaching that program for eight years no way yeah so i grew up there i grew up playing DD. i volunteered i was like a teaching assistant and then i ended up being the actual instructor of that course while i was pursuing like an archaeology career at the museum so i was an archaeologist museum and a teacher at the same time that's
0: great that reminds me of the story from uh uh, molly ostertag when we had her on Uh, she went to a a uh, a camp that was a little bit more like a LARP camp out in the woods, uh, but then she she loved it so much that she kept on and going, and then ended up being one of the camp counselors. And I find like that's that's a nice way to to still connect with that that camp or that kind of you know uh, oh yeah contained sure. experience, but then spread it on and then be the, the counselor. Um, so teaching D and D or or teaching new people how to play D and D is got to be like a forte of yours. Then now,
3: yeah, I mean I so I. I taught at the museum up until about June of this year. And then I do some teaching outside of, well, I don't work for the museum anymore. I do a lot of teaching outside. I co-founded an organization in Toronto called Level Up Gaming. And so what we do is we use uh, tabletop RPGs and board games to actually help adults with autism and other disabilities develop their social skills through these sort of group gaming experiences. And our fall program just started and we're playing, we've been playing fifth edition for like two years in the program right now.
1: This is amazing.
3: That's fantastic. So w-
1: what was the impetus for you starting this program?
3: Oh, it was actually like my work at the museum. Oh. Um, yeah, I had a student and this was, he came to me when he was 11 years old and he was on the autism spectrum and his mother came up to me and was like, hey, Daniel, he's never played D&D before. We don't know if this is going to work out. Uh, here's my phone number. If anything happens, you know, just give me a call and we'll, we'll take him home. And I, sa- I said, you know what, it'll, it'll be fine. Uh, he we started playing D and D. He really loved the sort of the half orc barbarian and of like Pathfinder and you know third and three point five. Mm-hmm. And he dove right into it. He loved it. He just loved killing stuff. And over the years, his as his social skills improved, as he made friends in the program, as we started doing some campaign setting writing ourselves, he started creating these really deep characters and came in with like lore that he had typed up and would email me stuff. And essentially, what happened was he transferred. He transitioned from being in you know alternative schools or homeschools to going to like a neurotypical high school. And he just actually got in touch with me and sent me an email saying that he's now in university and he had oh self-published gosh. two books.
1: Wow! But what?
3: When he was fourteen, um, I was actually going to Athens to work on an archaeological project. And his mom sent me an email and said, "Hey, uh, he's not going to come for the final uh, two days of your program." because he doesn't feel like he belongs there anymore. And I was sitting at JFK being like, what? And then I kept reading the email and she said, yeah, he, he feels like he wants to work for you now and he doesn't want to be your student. And he wants oh, to work for you.
1: That's so sweet. That I just goosebumps. That's I know. so sweet. And
3: I was it because I, I flew from Toronto to JFK and then I was going to Athens. And I was in the airport. We were boarding and I'm just like bawling and I'm the ugliest crier.
1: Mm.
3: <laughs> and I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> crying in the airport and I told two of my fellow teachers when I came back about what had happened and so one of them was a spec ed teacher and the other was training to be an occupational therapist and so we said you know what let's let's see if we can do something for people who are over 18 because once you hit 18 the the quality and you know breadth of programs that are available to you are, like greatly diminish yeah so we started something called level Up gaming uh, just over three years ago. And um, yeah, we've been doing it since. So this one student of mine, he ended up volunteering for me, uh, being one of my you know, staff GMs. And now I found out that he's writing books and studying philosophy and, at an East Coast university here.
1: Oh my gosh, that is <laughs> amazing. <laughs> and since
3: him, we, we got so many more. We had a student who he, uh, he had like violent tendencies and didn't like authority and would have a one-on-one. And immediately when he started playing D&D, didn't need a one-on-one assistant anymore. And he, I, he was with me for four years. He ended up getting a job. And now he's working at the museum with the same program after I left. And yeah, it's, so it's been pretty great.
1: What do you think? I mean, we hear a lot of, about people, um, therapists and teachers and uh, people who use D&D a lot in the capacity that you're using it. But what is it about D&D that you think is like, really helps people develop social skills and other skills?
3: I think D&D is, D&D is the only game that really hits, like, four critical things for me. Uh, D&D is the only game that really encourages you to collaborate, communicate, be creative, and think critically. The four Cs. All, all in one. Yeah. The four Cs, right? That's good. All, all in one. And I think it's low risk. You could do whatever you want. And in the hands of a, you know, a seasoned GM who doesn't you know, bring their own agenda to the story... D and D is a really good way for people to explore their identities, to you know explore behavior, but also to have somebody at the table who can model positive behavior. It's a place where you can practice. It's mm-hmm. literally a place of practice. It's awesome for that reason.
0: Yeah, and I noticed that with um, playing with kids too, that the, the the dungeon master can sometimes be the parent type situation where you're you're just exactly. d- you're demonstrating like, oh no, this is how you're. You're, you're intended to act in this situation, and you can just do it not necessarily by telling them, This is, you know, you better do this or you're going to be punished. It's more just like, Here's an example, and, and you can make that happen. And, and that must be a boon to uh, folks who are on the spectrum because they don't get that necessarily um, low stakes type of instruction. Yeah, 100% low stakes. Yeah, I love that. I, I love that, too. and I want. I, there's got to be some. way. I mean, obviously, the programs that you're doing uh, are having this huge impact, and I wonder if there's some way to 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 spread that so it's not just isolated in the little pockets of communities. You know, like in Toronto. Yeah, I know that there worldwide. there are
3: people all over North America who are kind of doing something similar. Yeah, um, there are after-school programs like Mr. E' his after-school program. Absolutely. Um, you know, they, I mean. we're we're all over the place, and I know there are a lot of teachers who are actually using D D for good. There is actually a teacher. In Southeast Asia, his name is Kairul Hisham, and he actually uses D and D at the college/university level to teach people English.
1: Oh amazing. my gosh!
3: Reminds me of Stripes.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but do he, run, he uses D and D. Do run, run. <laughs>
1: that's a strange <laughs> teaching, uh, teaching
0: them through like pop culture, but it is it is an yeah. amazing way to do so. So it doesn't feel um, again like you're just you got to memorize these things by rote, and that's the only way you're going to be able right. to learn a language. 100%. You'd learn it by doing it and having fun with it.
3: Exactly. And he, he does it with like, larger classrooms, so more than like, you know, your five people. He does it with like, 10, 12, 15 people at a time.
0: Wow.
1: You're going to learn yeah. some interesting vocabulary if you learn it by D&D. Like, you're going to be like, right. I know oh, th- yeah. what stalactites <laughs> are. And, like, most people are like, huh? What? The it's my, well, that's what's so cool t- about D&D, <laughs> though. <laughs> yeah.
3: I mean, like, so much of it is informed
0: by our, our real world. And, and even English speakers, native speakers of English, learn more oh, language and, and sure. vocabulary. Like, I, you know, my, I, I'm always amazed by what words I know. Then I can be like, oh, wait, what? how would I know that? How do I know In, this? Yeah, right? Like euphonious. I don't, I've never heard that word any other time, but I was looking up <laughs> a, 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 an adjective for, for a bard. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, he would be a euphonious bard.
1: What does this mean? I remember
0: mean? when I first started playing, <laughs> I learned the word prerequisite. Prerequisite, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're
3: like yeah. proficiency. Oh, yeah.
1: You're
0: like, what would you know proficiency yeah. from?
1: Uh, Even like a being- oh, word like to a kid, like charisma, like that's not something they go around saying. Like, that no, has, it's not. It's got a lot of charisma, that yeah, one. Right. You know? I remember learning sarcophagus. Sarcophagus. Like, I never knew Ooh, that. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a very and the good stalagmites one. and stalactites, which I still get confused I still about do which too. one is which. But right. it's in my vocabulary now.
0: That's true. You know at least you're getting
3: it wrong.
1: Right, I have a 50-50 oh, shot. Of
3: them. You can say both of them and you just don't have to specify which one's up or I mean, down. I, I just
1: say it like really fast. Like, oh, watch out for the...
0: Insert GIF of yeah. Yeah, tapping your head down. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like it. So in your program, in Level Up, um, so like what, what is the... Like how, how is it run? Is it just okay. like... Okay, yeah. Like, is it... I don't know, you tell me.
3: So we, we actually, what we do is so we run either eight-week or ten-week programs. So once a week... We, so all of my partners and I, we all have day jobs. So uh, once a week in the evenings, we get together. At, uh, right now, we're, we, was, we started at a place called the Center for Social Innovation. and Now we're partnered with a uh, community center. And we have a room to ourselves. And on the first session, we sit down and we basically set expectations. We say exactly what safety tools. I know you had my friend, Kiana Shaw, who's mm-hmm. also another Canadian. Um, we talk about safety tools, what we want to use at the table, Uh, We make characters, and we talk about what we want our adventure to be. And then we kind of go into the more occupational therapy part of it, and we talk about our goals. So everybody has to have has to write down one to three goals that they want to work on over the course of the program. It could be I want to speak in character more often. I want to try to act as a character that's not me. I want to learn how to play D&D. I want to make a new friend, or I want to... Chat during the break, like instead of just you know engaging in game, I want to be able to chat outside of the game. Mm-hmm. Right, and the game kind of gathers everybody there for that opportunity. And so, as we play D anD D, at the end of every session, we go over our goals to make sure that we are working towards them. If we've worked towards our goal in a session, um, we'll check it off. And we're actually using this session. We're using the hero point variant. Right? That's in the I think it's in the player's handbook or the Dungeon Master's Guide, mm-hmm. and if they accomplish a goal, they get a hero point that they can use in game. So there's a mechanical incentive for actually you know, working towards your goals.
0: That's great. And we sit
3: Let's... at a table and we play D&D for three hours. And at the same time, there's an occupational therapist who uh, will play as a character in our game. So right now we have seven participants. And then the eighth one is a surrogate character played by the occupational therapist who will actually you know, model positive behavior and help me basically make sure everybody has spotlight Uh, especially you know when you're playing with people with autism we have to realize that not everybody engages with the excitement of the narrative or combat or or whatever at the same in the same way and so sometimes we'll have people who sit down and they'll just hand write and they won't look at you but when you give them spotlight they'll start reading what they're writing and
0: what they're writing is a script of what they want their character to say.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Nice way to, yeah. to, to like get those thoughts down on a way that doesn't feel uh, put on the spot, you know, even though yeah, it will be there, but like, yeah. Yeah, or like imagine being in a
3: conversation when you're talking to somebody and you're just writing something down and they don't acknowledge that you're trying to respond to them. So we're giving people a way to converse in, in, in ways that feel comfortable to them,
1: mm-hmm. but
3: also give them the opportunity to practice.
0: That's so cool.
3: So,
1: um, I, I assume that they share their goals with you and the yes. occupational therapist. And then, are you like, if there's, are you doing things in the game that kind of lead them to that goal?
3: Yep, 100%. So, the, the entire camp, I basically give them one or two sentences and I say, this is kind of our primer for the adventure. What uh, of it? It kind of worked out perfectly because I, I had wrote a, written a nautical adventure. And one of the participants, his family and him, he and his family are really into sailing. And he oh. said that, I was like, oh, well, I don't know anything about sailing, so you're going to help us out. And he became this leadership role in the party and in the room. Um, and That's then, great. of course, as we get goals, we'll say, well, if somebody wants to really work on their role-playing skills, I'll put a lot less combat in it. Or if somebody really wants to remember how they could keep track of all the things in their inventory...
0: I'll make sure that we have a lot of opportunity to use our gear. I love that. I love mm-hmm. that because, you, you know, in some ways when you're creating adventures, you know, you, you, uh, as a dungeon master, you, you want prompts in a way. You almost want things mm-hmm. that you want to be able to give to your players that, that uh, will ensure a good time at the table. So in many ways, even though this is for uh, a specific, you know, uh, you know use I feel like mm-hmm. I could use this in my in, as a dungeon master, like throughout. 100 oh, you know? percent. Yeah, with neurotypical 100%. or anybody, because you're like, oh, well, what? You, what are your goals? What do you want your character to be to be doing? Um, and doing that offline through email or whatever, like that, and then bringing that to the table and be like, all right, here's the adventure that is you know going to touch on some of these these goals going forward.
3: Yeah, totally. I think that like the biggest rule, like people ask me at conventions, like, oh, what does it take to be a really good GM? And I just tell them, it's like you have to be the player's biggest fan. And you, you want to make them look good. You want them to succeed, but you also want to challenge them along the way. And with Level Up, we're challenging them along the way, but we're challenging them in a very structured way based on their goals. I love it. I love it.
1: So how do people, how do they hear about this program? How do they get into it?
3: We've got a website called levelupgaming.ca. Uh, they could sign up there. They could always, you know, tweet at me. We have a social media as well. Um, but I'm, my, my personal social media is kind of the big one. Um, but yeah, we we've got like a very long waiting list. But we're in, we're in the process of expanding, and okay. one of the things that we'd like to do is actually take some of our participants who have kind of feel like they've graduated out of being a you know a gamer and actually have them be a GM. Oh, yeah,
0: that's that's the ultimate goal as we expand. Yeah, like the like the student who's like I I've
1: surpassed I'm the surpassed teacher. the master. Let yeah. me be <laughs> one
0: of of you.
1: I mean that's. That's pretty incredible. If you're you're somebody who came to this group with a goal of I want to be able to chat in between sessions and then you eventually become a dungeon master. I mean, that's that is a huge. Yeah, we had we had that last league. session
3: and we had uh, a participant who one of his goals was to, you know, make sure that he does engages in small talk during oh. break. And we were doing an 8 week session and at week 4 the the OT and I were like, okay, if anybody is actually interested in GMing, why don't we break off and do six sessions of Daniel GMing and we'll we'll have two sessions where one person can actually GM an encounter. And you'll have two hours and you could do an encounter. And for, you know, a seasoned gamer, like two hours for an encounter, that might be too long. But this is the two hours of us being able to work at our own pace. Yeah. And so this participant actually GMed uh, half of an adventure for us. And it's, it's wonderful. And he unfortunately... Signed up too late for our current program, and he's, he was put on the waiting list. But he emailed me and he said, "Hey Daniel, I wrote an adventure. Any tips on how I can run
0: that with my friends?" And I was just like, "Oh my god!"
3: Oh, oh. oh that like amazing. a
0: full graduation moment. Um, yeah. So you mentioned that you've been writing adventures for this. Uh, what type of other than obviously listening to the goals and trying to curtail your adventure to that? Like, what kind of um, advice would you give to someone who might want to start up a similar program? Like, what 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 are some hallmarks that you've learned by? working with groups like this to uh, make sure the adventure doesn't fall into pitfalls that would put them in an uncomfortable place.
3: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, I, I have, I make all of our objectives here. I can just even, I can read you out what we're doing. It's, like
0: it's <laughs> Actually, can you just anything. run it for us?
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll just run the adventure for yeah, you. Yeah, all right. Um, I actually, <laughs> I actually use our Level Up Gaming Adventures to play test things that I want to do on Asians Represent. Oh, nice. Um, so with this one, I, I wanted to... I, I make sure that our adventures aren't about killing stuff. Uh, they, they will you know encounter monsters and there will be threats, but the, the core part of the adventure will always be something social. So for this one, they've actually been hired by an ex-adventurer to escort her daughter to a temple in another kingdom. So we're actually going from a fantasy China and we're traveling across this ocean on a ship called the Tranquil Mist... To a, a kingdom called Nawa, the land of the
0: python, which is like um, from like Filipino mythology. Cool. And uh, so, so yeah. So, the, the, so uh, that interaction. I mean, obviously, there's gonna be monsters and object- and uh, uh, obstacles in the way that you're gonna have to overcome. But it's not about slay this dragon. It's about let's just go yeah. from point A to point B, and then it's it, about
3: help these people.
0: Yeah. And when you're aboard
3: the ship, you know those the people that you're helping are there, and you're actually put in a situation where. You have an opportunity to socialize. Like that downtime is super important because, you know, when you're on a ship and you're sailing, this is an opportunity for you to be like, oh, well, why are we escorting you here? Why couldn't you have done it yourself? Why do you need our help? And how can I help you? I love that. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, it's interesting So we, we
3: rarely do like a pure dungeon crawl. Very rarely do we do that.
0: Yeah, and I think that's been an interesting shift and in trend in the D and D culture overall. Is that the you know you were mentioning the earlier editions and how those got you in? Uh, obviously, those were much more dungeon crawl favored type of design. And then as it's you know matured here into fifth edition, I feel like I would be disappointed if if a DM was just like, "All right, yeah, no, there's a MacGuffin at the bottom of this dungeon. Go find it." Yeah, you know, I feel like like I I, find that boring. I do too. Uh, You know, and I play video games for for that type of stuff where, like, I just want to, you know, not mindlessly, but like in some ways, you know, not have it be the social interaction. I think what makes D and D fifth edition really interesting is that it focuses on those those kind of social goals and and ways to uh, connect with people.
3: Yeah, I like. I had a long term group, and we we were doing in at the museum when I was running the program. We actually had a campaign that spanned five years. Wow. uh, With Hundreds of kids, kind of being characters in it, and writing this world.
0: What is it about Canadians who always have these long <laughs> no, campaigns? There was another dedicated person. Dedicated man. Remember the other person we spoke to, Robert from from Ontario, who like had like a thirty five year Oh yeah, uh, The Canadians. guy in London, yes, in London, right. Ontario, yeah. yes. It's yeah. It's, everybody it be, in the Toronto scene knows him. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's that <laughs> province. It just has longevity. D yeah. and D campaigns within you.
3: You're
1: dedicated. Yeah,
0: we we ran like a two hour campaign. The, the coolest part was was some of the.
3: The, the, the kids who were, you know, had played the same characters in it for a very long time. Our adventurers ended up being like, well, we're in this, well, we're in this city. This one kid wrote about this city. So we're in this building and they're just adventurers kind of trying to figure out what they want to do with their day. And it's, and it's like, well, I don't, I wrote something, but we're not going to use it because you know so much about the world that you could just let, let's go to this temple and see what's going on here. Or let's go collect this. And it's like, well, you're just driving the narrative now and you don't need me.
0: That's, I, I love that because it ends up just feeling so much more like a simulation in that way. Exactly. Where it's like, you know, you, you, the, the strength of d can be like, you can do anything you want. And in that situation, you really could. You, they could go visit whatever Even just be like, hey, remember that awesome thing we did two years ago? Let's see what's what's happening and check in and make sure that everything is okay in that town still.
3: Yeah, and then there's your adventure from there. It's like, oh, well, things aren't going so well because when you you know play this adventure when you were 11 years old you killed all of the leadership <laughs> and then you left thinking you did some good for them and now it is anarchy
0: right you took out the alpha pro- uh, um, uh, what's the word? predator you're the alpha predator yeah. and then all of a sudden all of the bunnies and sheep are, are are you know out of whack ravenous monsters
1: yeah. consequences it's important it is and important to learn yeah I'm thinking and, and that's all the that's things. why
0: that's why having everybody
3: kind of invested in the world building part of the narrative is so important
1: yeah and it's just I, I love how like it sparks different things in different people. You know, like somebody might get super interested in reading all about uh, different civilizations because of something that happened in a campaign and someone else might be interested in learning all about magic or, you know, it's just letting them be a part of that just gives them so much more. It gives the whole campaign just more depth.
3: Or if, you know, there's somebody who's interested in magic, you can ask them, well, what does magic look like in this world? Yeah. What does it look like to you? What does it look like to your people? Right. How does your culture
0: view magic? Go from there. That's awesome. So you mentioned uh, Asians Represent. Uh, That is a much more, uh, I guess, adult. (laughs) Not not focused on kids uh, as much. Uh, when When did you start that podcast? Just over a year ago, actually. Um a year and two months and uh what was the impetus there there? just uh, another creative outlet for you
3: (laughs) sort of so my co-host agatha went up to me and was like hey um i want to do a podcast and i had i had done a podcast i had been podcasting prior to that but not in gaming um i have a podcast that now is dormant called curiosity and focus and it was just like i just talked to people who i found interesting about archaeology Um, no, actually, I talked to like um, I talked to like a UFC fighter. I talked to Simu Liu, who is in Shang Chi. He Ooh, lives in Toronto. Interesting. A um, whole bunch of like actors, scientists, and we're just talking about things that were cool.
1: Kind of like Dragon Talk. Like, oh, totally. Yeah,
3: yeah, kind of like Dragon Talk. <laughs> this one was was World Talk. Uh, <laughs> tai Chi Talk.
1: You might need to Tai-chi bring that back. Talk. <laughs> yeah, d- different
3: every every the 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 podcast episode. Uh, the name of the show changed. The
1: <laughs> it was not so, good for SEO. Not, not it was not good for SEO, and I did
3: not retain a lot of listeners. <laughs>
1: yeah, weird. Um, They're just but Agatha out. came
3: up to me and was like, hey, like, I want to start a podcast. I just don't know what for. And I was like, oh, man, what, what if we did a podcast where we talked about uh, sort of Asian themes and RPGs? Because there was nobody talking about that at the time. And so we were like, let's do it. And so we pitched the idea to James D'Amato of the One Shot Network. And he said, Done. And so we started Asians Represent and we sat down and in the first episode, we talked about Orientalism. And we kind of sat down with the, the, the second and third edition um, Oriental Adventures books. And we kind of talked about why they you know, were problematic and not necessarily racist, but reductionist. And we kind of yeah. talked about why that sort of material that's not just D&D that is prevalent in all RPGs, is harmful to the Asian community and then we talked about and we proposed solutions to them and it became this discussion-based show and people really loved it and you know people were like oh well I've didn't I've never heard my perspective on a gaming podcast before and or like every single gaming podcast that talks about Asian stuff is just all white people and so we started producing um more episodes every month we did like two episodes a month and then we were like well let's do an actual play and we started a show called um, Masks, New Shambhala, and it was kind of our Asian Wakanda. And so <laughs> we were playing a game called Masks about teenage superheroes in this uh, sort of utopian society in the Himalayas called New Shambhala, um, as kind of a test run to see if we could do actual play. And then Agatha had never really played D and D before, and I've been playing it all my life. And I was like, you know what? We got to play Fifth Edition. Uh, and so. Um, it was actually after D&D Live this year that I realized that, like, you know what? I really want to do a D&D actual play with an all-Asian cast set in an all-Asian world. And so we started Dungeons De-Asians. which
1: is I love that name, by the way. <laughs>
3: if, you know what? It was our, like, it was our last option. We couldn't think of anything else. <laughs>
1: it's perfect.
0: Dungeons
3: De-Asians. So, Dungeons and to asians And so we we've put out... With our Session Zero, we put out four episodes. A new one actually came out this week. Nice. And we're actually writing a campaign setting as we go, and we wrote all new classes for it as well, because we found that a lot of the 5th edition classes just didn't fit within, uh, right now, of Fantasy China. So I'm the GM and I'm Chinese, so our story's going to start in China. And as we go, all the other players at the table will get a chance to GM, but our characters will actually go to
0: you know, parts of Asia where the rest of the table is from.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
0: Is it, um, uh, you, you said fantasy China, so does that mean it's just China with like a fantasy bent to it? Like it still is, has, you know, the historical uh, history? Yeah. yeah a, so I based it history? on, kind
3: of, yeah. So I, I I based it on two periods in China's history. I based it on the Han Dynasty, which is Han and then post-Han are like one of the bloodiest periods in China's history. There's a lot of war, a lot of strife, a lot of conflict. Uh, but there's also a lot of um, material culture from it, from an archaeological perspective. So that means that I could actually go to the museum where I used to work and look at the real weapons, look at the real crossbows oh, and cool. um, make sure that everything kind of fits. But then I wanted magic. I wanted something, you know, fantasy. So I took elements of a dynasty called the Xia. Um, the Sha dynasty is something that Chinese archaeologists believe is very real and Western archaeologists believe is a work of sort of literary fiction. Oh, Uh, There's just differences in um, pedagogy. And so I kind of combined the two into a fantasy setting that we called the Emerald Realms. And the Chinese sort of area is called Sha, the Kingdom of the Mist. And we're kind of starting there.
0: That sounds super cool. And so then when you're exploring this world, you're already going into uh, archaeological type things that you're super familiar with Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, from the culture that you know, your, your heritage is from. So that's, like, mm-hmm. this, I don't know, that's got to be uh, uh, really rewarding.
3: Yeah, it's it's been super cool actually, like, using my education. <laughs> yeah.
1: I was just thinking, I'm like, wow, archaeology is, like, a really good skill for a dungeon master. <laughs>
3: yeah, I've been, like, I've, I remember when um, Game of Thrones first came out, And I was working in Jordan. So in Southwest Asia, Yeah, I was working in Jordan and season one had just come out and I was so excited about it. And I had left the country to go work there. And I was like riding horses and seeing castles and learning about the Crusades. And when I came back, a friend of mine was like, oh my God, Daniel. And I can say this now because it's been over for a long time. Oh my God, Daniel, did you see what happened to Ned Stark? I was like, no. And then he spoiled it for me. Oh. Wow. Yeah, I did touch Game of Thrones for actually a couple of years after that because I was like, I had never read the books. I thought he was the main character. And I, I was mean, like,
1: why would you do clearly this? Clearly, they would never kill another main character ever. Right? <laughs> right?
3: Um, so, yeah, I used all of my experiences there with castles in all of my earlier adventures. And then I, I traveled all over China when I was doing my dissertation. And... Got to take all those experiences, like the food, uh, interacting with people, all the different languages, and make that into a fantasy world.
1: I love that. I just really love hearing how uh, dungeon masters build their worlds and where they pull inspiration from. And it's just like it can be any part of it. a big part, a little part, anything from anything. Mm-hmm. Like it's really it, it's it's really inspiring just to hear. Yeah hear people talk about that. It's
0: like storytelling in general. Like if you, you, you write what you know, and yeah. then so you're having the things that are
1: like,
0: these, these important parts of your life, but then also you research about them too. You're like, even if I don't know about something, I'm sure this happened to you already while crafting this world. You're like, hey, I knew a little bit about these dynasties, but let me go a deep dive so that I can even be more inspired going forward. Oh,
3: yeah, 100%. And I mean, in crafting the classes, it's been so important for us. Like, not, not only is like, I, I wouldn't say historical accuracy. But one of the things that we really wanted to make sure we were doing was we didn't want to kind of blend all of China's history and cultures into one thing. Right. We, we 100% did not want that because we we kind of see this as a problem with other representations of Asia in
0: RPGs. Well, and as you were it saying kind of, with the Oriental Adventures, it kind of was yeah. that, you know, and it was this reduction of all these different tropes or things that people might have picked up from Hollywood movies that were also not the best... Uh, Source of yeah. material, uh, and then it being even more—it's like it's like a, a copy of a copy of a copy ends up feeling like something that is uh, uh, almost insulting to the to the original.
3: Yeah, and it's like uh, <laughs> when we released that first episode, I got so many people tweeting at me saying, "I love L5R. Am I racist? I loved Oriental Adventures. Does this make me a racist?" And I was like, "No, it just." You didn't have anything else to see at the time, right. or listen to, or read, and this is why you know shows like ours and all the other amazing creators who Asian creators who are creating Asian content. Mm-hmm. That's why that's so important. And you know, like I, I, I gotta say, like I really love what Wizards is doing, especially in. I feel like D and D's got to catch up, but in Magic, Wizards is doing so well with some of the Asian content.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, it was a, like, it was a specific uh, uh, I think desire to represent different. Cultures here on uh, Earth in this fantasy realm that felt true to uh, history and not just full of tropes.
3: Yeah, and I, I, think it's, I think it's so wonderful, and I can't wait to see, you know, what happens with D and D, you and know, and I think Wizards has been so great because you know, I've been so loud on Twitter because I was like, oh my god, I want to do Dragon Talk because I want to talk about Asian representation, and then, where look at look at us now.
0: Yeah, here um, we are. It's happening. That's how it happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah. And, I, and I think it's so, it's so important for, like, creators to be loud about this because, you know, we want to be seen. Like, when I, somebody asked me, um, you know, when was the first time you felt seen in, in media, in, like, in pop culture? And I had to really think. Like, I was like, whoa, when, when did I feel like I had been seen? Like, representation is such a personal experience, like, as is feeling seen. And I didn't feel seen in pop culture until this show called Kim's Convenience came out. And I don't know if you folks are. familiar I have with
1: seen it. that. I love that show.
3: So, so it's filmed in Toronto. It's a show about Toronto, and it's about a Korean family who owns a convenience store called Kim's Convenience. And oh,
0: okay, yeah, now I know.
3: Yeah, one of the characters played by Simu Liu, who's now in Marvel movies, he he plays this sort of high school dropout uh, son who's just cr- trying to kind of make it. But I feel I resonated with that character because you know he's at odds with his family. He wants to do what he loves. Like, my family never really supported my love of RPGs, Mm. especially in trying to produce, you know, content production. And so I really resonated with that character. And then I started thinking, like, have I ever felt seen in, like, tabletop RPGs in terms of books? And I don't think I ever have. And so I want to try to, you know, make that happen for other people. Yeah. And maybe put myself somewhere so I could feel seen, not just physically, not just this like teal hair and right. glasses, because that'd be really weird. Um, It'd be a cool-looking character, though. Totally. Or a cool-looking character, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, my experiences, my, my culture, and not just these stereotypes that we see.
0: Yeah, so if you were to at, like, do a, well, first off, I don't know if it would be called this, but if you were to do an Oriental Adventures uh, that is, you know, using 5th edition and set now, what, what would be some of the tenets that you would want? And A, is that title offensive? <laughs> the, title is, the title is offensive. Yeah.
1: First yeah. thing we change.
0: Sorry, that's it. First thing we change. <laughs> I wouldn't
3: even call it that. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a book called Orientalism by an author named Edward Said. Mm-hmm. And he kind of talked about how uh, Orientalism is kind of this way of seeing, imagining, or viewing this Eastern Orient, which he referred to as like Southwest Asia, the, the Middle East. Yeah, and and how it, it kind of exact how our views of it are exaggerated or distorted um, compared to that of Europe or you know the United States, and how our perceptions of the East are very much kind of played out in a way that makes the West feel powerful.
0: Yeah,
3: and so that that's Orientalism, and we see it in Aladdin. If you if you've ever watched the original Aladdin, I'm, I'm sure you have. Uh, Aladdin and Jasmine are both very good looking characters but their voices sound American and every other Arab character who are around them, who's around them, you know, there are these, they're either like plump and greedy and conniving or like Jafar evil and sinister. And they all have accents, but the two main characters have Western sounding voices. Yeah. And I mean, let's not talk about the music. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Some of those lyrics are are, are not good. (laughs) Yeah. And so one of the things I would do is instead of making it a single campaign setting, I would want to do, Shorter volumes, Hmm. uh, all connected in a series, because one of the problems with the original Oriental Adventures is that it has this. It takes one book and it takes all the Asian cultures and sticks them into one thing. It kind of it's, it's dangerous because it promotes this sort of singular,
0: problematic, fictitious image of a very, very diverse people. I've I've heard that from uh you know, Native Americans, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all kinds of uh indigenous peoples who it just ends up being lumped. Africa is the same way we're like, Oh, you're from Africa, but there's, you know, thousands it's a of giant different cultures. Continent. It's huge. I know. I was actually trying to explain mm-hmm. that to my to my daughters recently where she was uh asking it, but she was like, Oh, all of Africa is, is, is a desert, right? And I'm like, no, mm, there's okay. rain in Africa. There's and I started singing Toto. Toto's Africa never heard that song by Toto. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but like you know, there's rainforest, There's uh, there's all these different you know uh, geographical uh, you know type things going on, as well as different cultures who come from you know very different you know, uh, tied to the land, but also just tied to you know uh, unfortunately colonialism and different you know European nations that were there and what was done to to those peoples and and, and all mm-hmm. that. So. Uh, I love that idea of it not just being a single, you know, book about uh, Asian cultures, but like, you know, almost like a a time-life book anthology. Like, oh, here's what D&D would be that has a Korean flavor or even, you know, modern Korean flavor versus, you know, different dynasties within those flavors. And then, you know, here's Singapore. See, for me,
3: like, I wouldn't even go for – I wouldn't even go for flavor. And I don't think you mean this intentionally because I know when a lot of people are like, well, I want to make this, you know, Asian-flavored D&D – it often goes down to, well, I want to reskin something to make it look Asian. Mm. Right? So if I want to say, oh, I want, um, you know, a Korean-flavored D&D, well, let's just change the name of the spellcasting class to something that sounds Korean. Yeah. Uh, there, there was, there, there have been a couple attempts to do it, um, but none of them have involved Korean people. Uh, there's, there's a, if, you know, the listeners or anybody who's viewing this, there's a, a designer in Korea, his name is Sangjun Park. Uh, you can find him on, through my Twitter, It's um, his Twitter is spelled Kop. And he's a translator and designer in Korea who has, actually comes from a family of scholars who study Korean folklore. That's... And so if I were to do this project, what I would want is you know, to get a, a whole bunch of people down uh, from different Asian cultures to kind of sit down and talk about what this Asian world looks like and what are all of these you know, nations that are colliding in this one space kind of come up with something that kind of unifies everything Mm. and then work separately on our different cultures and then release them in a series. So you have like book one, China, book two, Korea, book three, Japan, book four, South Asia, and
0: then move on from there. Would it be, you know, I mean, I'm just spitballing, brainstorming type things here, but if, if it almost might be interesting to not have it be so directly tied to real world, uh, uh, mm-hmm. Analogues, um, but then create kind of like a like a like an Eberron or a Planescape type thing. Yeah, wow. this for is, sure. This is a plane in which all of uh, the people have, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a tide through somewhere, but they've they've been s- split into different areas. But then this area is very much inspired by uh, the Korean, you know, thing. Yeah, this one's very Peninsula, much inspired yeah. by China. This one's very much j- Japan, and they will all have different, uh, uh, you know, interconnections, just like you know, the Forgotten Realms does now. For sure,
3: yeah, 100%. I, I
0: think that would be wonderful.
3: Um, I actually wrote something for Wizards. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not allowed to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> oh. You just
0: did, dang it.
3: But <laughs> no, nah, but my, Mike, Mike emailed me and was like, I want you to write something, write it. And I wrote a, a really cool Chinese thing. So hopefully, it, I submitted it actually earlier this week and hopefully oh, it cool. sees the light of day. Um, Sweet. But yeah, I, w- I, would, I would love to do something like that. Like, like what you said, having... Know, all of these different cultures in one shared space. Uh, and then for each one, this would be a huge undertaking, but for each one have kind of like what D&D used to do with prestige classes, having classes that are culture specific. Yeah. Uh, because one of the things that we were looking at when we were doing Asians represent is the fact that very few of the core classes in the player's handbook actually fit in fantasy China
1: yeah I wanted to go back to that because i when you mentioned that the first time I was curious so what classes you guys created new mm-hmm. classes so what 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 are those classes
3: so we so we have three players right now so we have three well defined classes we um we have one that's called the yosha the the yosha is comes comes from the wuxia genre, genre of like fiction and movies and, and books and the yosha is kind of this wandering knight errant they um yeah, they're kind of like. Have you ever seen Hero, uh, the Jet Li movie? I haven't.
1: I don't think I. have. Oh my god! <laughs> go go watch that homework this weekend. Uh, homework. <laughs> homework.
3: <laughs> um, yeah, the 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 Yoshia is is kind of this wandering knight, um, but they they go around and they're they're not necessarily a vigilante, but they they walk around and they they're kind of like a folk hero. Um, we have one called the Sky Soldier. The Sky Soldier is kind of akin to the Paladin, but they uh, have a very, very strong connection to the gods and they might not take a human form. Uh, we have the martial artist, which is our reworking of the monk. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, a sage. The sage is one that we're working on right now and they kind of focus on this idea of you know, traditional Chinese medicine, which doesn't quite line up with the 5th edition cleric, which is all about you know, this sort of European religious ideals. This one is like, you've got herbalism, acupuncture, something called qigong, which is you know, the cultivation of qi, in your body. Wow. Um, there's obviously the outlaw. Banditry is figures hev- heavily in Chinese literature. And so the idea of a bandit, an outlaw, but a very charismatic one. So kind of the opposite of how the rogue is portrayed in D&D. Um, you have more of like your Robin Hood character. Yeah. Like a, um, like a bard, but more... Uh, like, a, like a bard who um, is a criminal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a bard who's a criminal. And then the last one is the diviner. Um, Chinese, in Chinese culture, there isn't really this sort of idea of arcane magic. It's not, it's not a thing. Um, a lot of the magic you see is divine in origin. And so when we had the, the diviner, um, I drew on early dynastic Chinese history where your magical power is actually drawn not from like a patron or anything like a warlock, but drawn from your own family and your ancestors. And it's a kind of character who has to uh, very narratively interact with the
0: ancestors that follow them. And that's where they draw their power from. I love um, the the reworking of those so yeah. that it feels more, more true to how literature has portrayed. Those kind of adventuring types.
3: Yeah, we, we put a lot of work into The Monk because The Monk was the one that we knew people would want to play, uh, especially since it's an existing class, because there are so many things about the monk that are not necessarily problematic, but of all of the classes, the monk is the only one that has any cultural signifiers. It's the only one that's hard-coded as Chinese. Um, Even if you think about the barbarian, the barbarian in fifth edition is not like a foreigner. They're not illiterate like they were in previous editions of D&D. It's not hard-coded as like, oh, you're like a Mongolian, in you know early Chinese history, you're just a barbarian. The Druid, aside from its name and use of certain like icons, isn't necessarily Celtic. But the monk is hard coded as Chinese. Uh, like not only from like its use of chi, but e- even if you look at the way the art is done, all of the like the colors of their the clothing and even the older editions, they look Asian. They look East Asian. Um, but there's so many things about the monk that aren't necessarily Chinese or aren't necessarily accurate. Um, and it's not to say that the monk is problematic it's just to say that the monk is a very reductive
0: portrayal of what a Chinese character could look like um, yeah it's almost if as you, if it, the, the way yeah. it was designed was to, to try to draw in as many people but by doing that yeah. it, by doing that, it makes it feel bland and off-putting
3: yeah I mean if you look at like, it's, it's, what, are your, what are your two core stats if you're a monk in 5th edition it's dexterity and wisdom Right? So dexterity is, implies that you, you are small, you are live, you are agile, but you could use these small weapons. But if you look at you know traditional Chinese martial arts, they have large weapons like the guandao, which is uh, basically the equivalent of a glaive, um, or like long swords and broad swords like the Chinese jian, which is that straight sword that you see in a lot of Kung Fu movies, mm-hmm. or that this large curved broad sword. Um, but those would all be strength-based weapons. But as a monk, you have... Your, one of your core stats, your combat stat, is your dexterity. Then there's that idea of chi. And chi is kind of portrayed as magic in D&D. It's this uh, action economy that you have to do special things, which are really cool in game. Like, I love playing the monk. Um, the character I play in my, you know, all my con games is always a monk. It's a gnome monk. Nice. Um, or I play as Jeremy Lin, but that's a different one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Swish. He's a Goliath monk. Um, <laughs> But you, you basically like chi is portrayed as magical. But in Chinese culture, it is like the underlying principle of traditional Chinese medicine and martial arts. And if anything, like chi should be something that the fighter can use, the paladin can use, mm. the the rogue could use, or even the bard. If
0: you kind of become a swashbuckler, can use. You're right, and but, not not for the recreating these magical type effects that's in there right now. But yeah, or, it's like it's your breathing, your, your posture. Dice. Yeah,
3: yeah, exactly. Maneuver dice. Yeah. Um, But then having Chi kind of makes any monk that magical Asian or, you know, like every Asian knows martial art stereotypes. So if you look at like Mr. Miyagi or like Pai Mei, you know, having a magical Asian character basically um, gives, you know, GMs an opportunity to have Asian characters in a role where all they do is give wisdom to white people. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so like, again, like the, the monk is very much a of the result of Western conceptions of Eastern modes of fighting, and that that would be the first one that I would change.
0: Would you want to, uh, you know, make some of the components of the monk more accessible to other classes? Like, you know, uh, allow, like you said, the fighter or the paladin to be able to multi-class into monk a little bit easier. Is that? Kind oh of yeah, what you're for
3: talking? sure. Yeah, what we're doing with Asians represent with with our martial artist who's, who's the monk. We actually. Uh, went and kind of gave them the choice of either going with a hard style martial art, so something more chi-based, kind of like that tai chi, or that hard style martial art where you're like perfecting your body. And Amar, who plays the martial artist in our campaign, he picked this like hard style. And so every, as as he levels up, he gets both form mastery and something called iron body, this mastery of his actual physical essence. So he doesn't make use of qi at all. He actually just masters maneuvers. He masters weapons. But he also kind of masters his body through exercise. So he you know, learns how to control his breathing. And so we kind of gave him something similar to what the fighter has with second wind. Mm-hmm. Um, and we kind of gave him like something called iron soul. We, we gave, kind of gave him the ability to add constitution instead of wisdom to his armor class. Uh, where he's actually training his physical body to withstand trauma and pain. Uh, we gave him the ability, the ability to you know, withstand exhaustion and stun because he's actually you know, trained his body to walk through deserts and climb mountains. Um, kind of if you imagine that montage in Mulan where they're all training... <laughs> Yeah, and any training montage, really. Any all- training montage, even Rocky, even Rocky. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're in like you're in like a freezer, except there are no freezers, so you're at the top of a you're mountain. The top of a mountain, mountain
0: instead. Punching yeah.
3: a piece of meat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> except this one, it's like you're punching the carcass of a dragon. <laughs> yeah. I'm done, I'm done, so, was, so that's uh, kind of what we've <laughs> that's what we've done with the the martial artist. Um, I like it. Yeah, and so we just wanted to make it you know more representative of Chinese
0: culture. Are you, uh, uh, hopefully the answer to this is yes, are you uh, codifying this into something that people can, can grab on, like say, Dungeon Master's Guild or something like that? 100%. We're actually going to take, uh, we're building the world as we game and in between
3: sessions. So everything w- that we're going to do, we're actually going to put into a single book. Um, oh. Not sure where that book's going to go, but we're going we're to publish it all as a Love single it. volume.
0: Love it. That's so great. Um, and then, you know, you recently uh, participated through Asians Represent on the podcast Into Avernus with uh, Victoria Rogers yeah. and the Broadswords. Swords. Uh, how is it adapting some of what you guys have been doing to a published, you know, D&D story as a, uh, as a backbone? <laughs> I can imagine that, that being a little bit difficult.
3: That storyline was entirely based on our drive to Gen Con. <laughs> we we, (laughs) so two things happened on the ride to gen con um one thing i wrote an rpg about eating cheese string um (laughs)
1: like
3: you do like you do (laughs) and the second was i thought well well, what if we made the entire you know podcast into a Vernus thing about a road trip because we were on this road trip and what if you go from like in our minds we're like what if you go from like heaven canada
1: uh uh-huh. two uh-huh. <laughs> on the nose. Too soon. Two on the nose. <laughs> yeah. um,
3: but like, well, we were like, well, what if it was just about all the people we meet? And we, you know, we had gone to these road stops and we met this really nice, it was called Grandma's Road Stop. I think. Uh-huh. And that I was is like, for sure the?
1: a portal to hell. <laughs> I don't know. Tell them large Mars sent you. And
3: it said Canadian nightcrawlers. And I said, What are Canadian nightcrawlers? And she said, Oh, nightcrawlers from Canada. And I was like, What's a nightcrawler? And the worms? we basically, I think they're worms. Yeah, for fishing. Worms. Yeah, I didn't know that. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we we took that entire like amazing experience of driving down to Gen Con and basically said, okay, well, what if this was this cannonball road trip?
0: And then it kind of turned into a, uh, a like a rescue mission.
3: So, yeah, awesome. it, was a, it was a
0: lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I loved the whole like kind of road trip idea for a uh, a series of, of podcasts. It seemed perfect when you guys pitched that to me. I was like, yes. Like I, I, I love taking <laughs> kind of you know narrative tropes from movies and other type of things and applying them to kind of short seasons of of D anD d campaigns because it feels I don't know it just feels like a a, a natural evolution of, of of this medium.
3: Yeah, like, like that movie Rat Race or uh, <laughs> or Mad or like Mad World, Fast and Furious, or, or yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, road
0: trip, even the movie Road Trip. Yeah, Road Trip. Yeah. Yeah. Which is Or like in Ithaca. a
3: in a way dumb and dumber.
0: Ithaca, yeah, right? Ithaca. They, they went came from Ithaca, didn't
3: yeah, they?
1: They did. Yeah. A little claim to fame.
3: That's right. Damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it was a it was a really good experience. Like and I love Descent to Avernus is super cool. I love how different it is from every other
0: one. It, it's really neat. Yeah, that's been a goal, is trying to not have these uh, annual storylines that we're doing feel samey. At all, you know, and then even just looking back to those years from, like, the jungles of Chult to Storm King's Thunder before that, and then the oh, yeah. Underdark before that, yep. and then, yeah. you, know, you know, going from uh, the city-based thing from Waterdeep into this uh, uh, hellscape, it is, yeah, each one of them just feels like, all right, yeah, we're getting different flavors each time.
3: It's like the most metal thing yeah. that, that's ever existed in <laughs> do D&D. It's super awesome, just for that reason alone. The, like, I've pitched it to so many of my friends I said, well, it's, it's D&D, but it's like Mad Max. And you can get these hell vehicles. Yeah. And you can just ride through hell killing
0: kill like devils. It's, it's so cool. And everybody's like, I'm on board.
1: Say no right? more.
0: Yeah, all right. Building off of uh, Mad Max Fury Road, for sure. I remember watching that movie and being like, I want to play in that world so badly. Right? Yep. Awesome. And now you can. And now we can. Now you can. Now you can. You all You can, can be do- Furiosa.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: Yes, if someone has not created that as a as a as a character I, shame on them.
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean what would what would Furiosa be if you were to make Furiosa out of out of just the player's handbook what would you what would you do?
0: I think she would be a ranger because of yeah. her that that one scene sharpshooting uh, where she was so frustrated by Max not being able to make she, she the shot. She puts the rifle over him. Yeah, and then she's just yeah. like, "All oh, right, I'll use." And then you're like, "Oh, okay, that's her skill set. Like she's She's definitely a leader, you know, beyond that. She has a high charisma. She's able to, to, to get people on her side. Um, but yeah, as far as her fighting, driving, which we don't really have a class that's around driving, but, you know, it would be that and, and uh, her, her range skills.
3: Yeah, like a heavy crossbow. Yeah. She's got some sort of like, um, like an artificer that helped her construct an arm. Oh, right. Or like like a, a Kowalsh artifact, maybe.
0: And I'm, I'm thinking like with, you know, Zerial having, uh, not having an arm. Uh, right, yeah. like having oh, uh, Furiosa yeah. have like a heavy crossbow that's like attached to her arm. Um, Ooh, that'd be cool. Yeah. All right. Now I want to create an NPC and uh, have <laughs> this be a another warlord. Not an that NPC. Is, I want to
1: be that. Character.
0: You want to be Furiosa? Yes. You be that character. Yes. Would you do the uh, the black makeup uh, yes. up above and everything?
1: Yes. Yeah. I love it. But
0: what if it was just like blood? What if it's just all blood?
1: Like, oh, yeah, real blood. Because you're in
3: hell. Yes, what if it's just head. devil's mustard? What if it's up, just uh,
1: sunscreen? Just <laughs> sunscreen.
3: <laughs> just on the upper, uh, just on the, 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 the upper two thirds of your face. Yeah, uh, so I
1: mean, I tend to burn. You know, this. From you the burn upper. here, but My down forehead. here, you're
3: like immune, yeah. immune to sunburn to totally. the lower half of
0: your face. Yep, yep. <laughs> That's Doing amazing. Uh, I love it. So cool. What a great conversation. I feel uh, very inspired, as well as I hope our listeners do to uh, to jump into all the things you've got uh, going on from the amazing work in archaeology and, uh, uh, you know, adults and children with autism and on the spectrum.
1: Oh you're a busy guy.
0: To all of these, uh, the Asian themes I that love you're, these you're bringing classes. forward. I
1: love the classes that you guys created. I'm yeah, really we're sitting gonna, here thinking, it, how can I be a sage? Really yeah, people like can
0: it. listen along as we,
3: as we play. I think within, I think next month we're going to level up and our whole episode is just going to be leveling up and talking about how we can, you know, change this class. And we're constantly, oh, like cool. we have a
0: spreadsheet and everything. Yeah. Sweet. Well, how can uh, our listeners find all the stuff that you're doing?
3: Yeah, just uh, follow me on Twitter, at Daniel H. Kwan. I actually captured that for, like, I have the domain and everything. So, yeah, Daniel H. <laughs> Kwan on Twitter, Daniel H. K-W-A-N on Twitter. Um, yeah, that, that's where you could find Level Up Gaming, Asians Represent. I've got a game right now about Asian representation on Kickstarter, um, but it's not D&D.
1: <laughs> all right.
3: <laughs> that's yeah, great. It's a it's a game about World War One. Oh, the, wow. Uh, Canadian and in my contributions, the Chinese
0: Canadian experience in World War One. Interesting, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I feel like that's a whole other interview we need to have about that. <laughs> that sounds exciting. Yeah, I love that era as well, and it's part of partly why I'm excited by Eberron that's coming out because it feels like it. it I'm super excited for that. Into a lot of those themes of of early 20th century stuff, mm-hmm. and all the miniatures. That airship looks super cool. I know, right? Yeah. Oh. I, I love miniatures.
1: <laughs> I do. Who see. doesn't?
0: They really, they transport you into that world. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, uh, uh, for being uh, a part of this community. I think you're amazingly uh, amazing creative and, uh, you know, I can't wait to have you back on and talk about all the other thousands of projects that you're doing you know, know, uh, <laughs> a year from now or six months from now. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. This was, uh, this was an honor. Wasn't that an awesome interview? Yes. I feel really, uh, I don't know, energized. I know.
1: I'm excited by, I love the, the level of gaming. You know what I love? What do you love? That they saw an opportunity. He was like, hmm, this is really helpful for for this group of people, for these kids, when he was damning in the museum. And then what happens when they, uh, when you're an adult and you could still benefit from learning some social skills in a really positive, supportive environment? Yeah. So they created it, right? You're like, yes. here's a need,
0: let's 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 fill it. Yes. Yeah, I love that.
1: And it's growing, and it's it's such an important thing that they're doing there. So Agreed. I really I really love that.
0: And I like that it is a very 2019 thing, right? Where like you know the way I mean people crap on social media, and you know uh, uh, the. Negative things of it, and there are right. things like that, but yes. what I love about the connectivity of the internet and creating podcasts and, and, and publishing things like that on the web is that it, it provides a platform for uh, uh, folks like Daniel and his colleagues to be able to do stuff that, yeah. that can reach a very large number of people that may not be connected by any other way. Right, like there's you know uh, uh, folks that clearly wanted this type of content, and they were able to find it from you know from actually living in Asia to you know, yes. Asian Americans here to you know uh, the Asian people all over the world, and they can all be like, all right, this is this is for us.
1: And you know he's he was very articulate, and I think explained it really well. Like I think I think we know why representation is, is important. Yeah, but I think that it might get lost to some people. Like maybe you don't know, especially in a game like Do You Need, where it's just fantasy. I mean you're, you're pretending to be an elf anyway, like why does it matter? Yeah. But his he was really good at explaining like why the a- attempts that have been made and that are out there aren't truly representative and why that's important that they are.
0: Yeah. And I love it, using you know uh, knowledge of archaeology, knowledge of history, knowledge yeah. of, of those cultures and making something that's richer than what was what what has been done in the past is a goal that I think everybody has. Yeah. Everybody wants to have those types of new classes and new uh, ways yes. of engaging with the storytelling that, uh, that Dungeons & Dragons provides yes. a framework for. So, like, kudos to them for making it
1: I, a thing. And I, I really do feel like when you, have a little, when you have a fantasy world that's rooted more in a reality world, mm-hmm. it's just easier to become immersed in it, to mm-hmm. me anyway. Like, I just feel like I can, maybe because there's things I can, I can grab onto that I can relate to, and then it just enhances the fantasy part for me. Agreed. So I, I just, I'm really, I'm excited. I hope that, that he they do publish that book, and I want to get my hands on some of those classes.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, right, well, so everybody follow Daniel Kwan, everything he's doing, uh, and it's one of my uh, favorite things about this podcast in general is that we get to talk to interesting people, like his podcast. Yes. Like his one that's all about different talks.
1: And what about <laughs> next week's podcast?
0: That's right. We have Brian Murphy uh coming on uh he is the co-host of not another D&D podcast. I very excited okay. about that.
1: I when you when I always see that name, not another D&D podcast. I always say in my head like not another D&D podcast. Yeah. And you also had like a, a little inflection when you said it.
0: I think that's I think that's intended. I think so too. I think they I mean, want people yeah. to realize that like it's oh, not there's like, a lot. not
1: of another it. D&D podcast.
0: Yeah. No. Because there's not a an lot there were a lot out th- th- there. Yeah, I love it. Um uh, but they they came in and they they filled a niche. Yeah. Um Quick oh, note. the irony. I will not be there for that. I'm going to be at the my hell? wedding. Yeah, you're going to be talking to Brian. With who? we got to figure it out. <laughs> Always good to do this on air. Uh, but yeah, I think you'll be talking with... <laughs> and, and Brian Murphy. It'll be fun. Great. We'll edit that in later. We'll, Super. We'll record a lot of names, and, and, and Ryan will just put it in there. Okay. All right? Makes sense? Yeah. Are you going to ask them all in, all the things? You can do it. You've, done it. you've done it on your own before. You're, you're a hero. And...
1: I need a hero. <laughs> I'm holding out. I will a be a hero. hero.
0: <laughs> We're hungry. I'm thinking of heroes. Oh, I went there, too. <laughs> mm. Delicious heroes. Maybe dinner tonight. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, listening to our oh, wait, craziness.
1: Thing. What thing? About Daniel. Yeah. Did he say cheese string? Yes. Did he mean string cheese?
0: I think. <laughs> did that? You just think about that right now. That was the one thing you wanted to make sure we it's got. The out one there. thing
1: that I took away from this whole interview. <laughs> yeah,
0: as as a, as being a parent of kids who eat a lot of string I've cheese. I've never heard
1: of it being called cheese string. Is this Canadian?
0: Maybe it's a Canadian thing. It's string cheese. Maybe it is. Is that like, what he meant? Or maybe it's like the, the spray cheese. Oh,
1: Cheese Whiz? The
0: cheese Whiz.
1: That's good stuff. <laughs> do you know that Bart's never had that? That jerk.
0: I have heard that. Is that just like a Wisconsin thing? He's like, no, we don't do Cheese Whiz because it's not real cheese. like oh. my people are known for. Really? I don't know. I just made that up.
1: Really, Bart? <laughs> <laughs> I got news for you, Bart. You have definitely been fed not real cheese. <laughs> and
0: I've seen it on the Easy Cheese label where it says, like, real Wisconsin cheese or something like that on it.
1: It's so good. Yeah. Well, somebody gave him a can of string cheese. Oh. And then he put it in the refrigerator. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, that doesn't go in the refrigerator. That <laughs> shit full of preservatives. You do not need this. You're ruining our... String cheese, cheese string, cheese spray, spray. Now I can't spray what cheese is it?
0: like a like a spray on cheese, like <laughs> psh, psh, psh,
1: psh. like an aerosol. Mmm, <laughs> <cheese. laughs>
0: yummy. This cheesy bread, yeah. this bagel would be a lot better if it anyway. had some spray cheese on it. Yeah. All right. So <sighs> Sorry. Uh, I'm so I'd... glad you brought up that <laughs> one Did you last. Hear it?
1: Daniel, d- please explain to me.
0: Yes, explain to me. Cheese string. Put it. Uh, put, yeah, we'll we'll have a Twitter conversation about okay. it for sure. Um, again, thank you everybody who listens to our crazy meanderings here on Dragon Talk. If you've You're made it patient. all the way to the end of this episode, uh, you deserve a high five. So, you get a hero point. You get a you get hero inspiration. point. You get inspiration. Chris Bergen said it's okay. Chris Bergen said you have double disadvantage. Oh. <laughs> if you That's true. Don't did ask not make him. it this far,
1: <laughs> he will go in the opposite direction.
0: If you would like to bug us uh, on the interwebs, what would be the best way for them to get in touch with you, Um, Shelly
1: Moo? Probably at Greg Tito. Just go through him. At Shelly Moo. Uh,
0: Very exciting. I am at Greg Tito on Twitter. You can also follow me on Instagram, Greg underscore Tito. But... Most of you want to pay attention to everything that's happening about D&D, and yes. you can do that by going to com, downloading Dragon Plus, which I've said we should all be doing right now yes. for free
1: yes.
0: RPG content. Yes. Make it happen. Uh, go to Dungeon Masters Guild as well. There is so much amazing creative work that's being uh, put up there. Hopefully, uh, you'll see some work from Daniel Kwan up there in the future, but... There is a, so a myriad of creative uh, stuff that yes. interacts with our adventures or uh, other homebrew stuff. So, many worthwhile. Many
1: past Dragon Talk guests and probably many future Dragon Talk guests. Yeah. There is We're, something awesome being uploaded right now. Right now.
0: Every five minutes. It every, happens.
1: <laughs> every five minutes, a new adventure
0: <laughs> is, is made. It's is born. It's beautiful. I love it. And yeah, that's it. This podcast, Dragon Talk, is uh, produced by Ryan Marth from Siren Sound. Give it up for Ryan. Lisa Carr does a fantastic job helping out with that production. Yes, she does. Kudos. Thank you to Shelly for being my co host.
1: Thank you for being my co host.
0: Thanks to Pellen Green, who's usually uh, helping us out with all the video streaming for making this happen and
1: eating a banana. Um, And thanks to Daniel Kwan for coming on and being an awesome guest. Yep.
0: All right. that's my my quick credits that
1: was really nice
0: yeah um, these credits I know I because I've been reading them on the wall of this cave that we've been exploring this whole time
1: right but there's one that I can't quite read because something's blocking it oh, can you move that thing sure
0: I'll just rub it oh
2: okay, all the rocks ah, ah! <laughs> <laughs>